Hello, Devin. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, so we finally actually got you in. It's you've you're officially. I think part of the reason you decided to come was so that you would not be contacted by me on Facebook Messenger anymore. As much as I enjoy a good harassing <laughs> slash haranguing, I um, no, I I that was the main reason. Yes. So I have like six people that at any given time I am actively like stalking on Facebook. And I'm like, I just need you to need unrelated you to, me, to the podcast. Me, no, or? no, that both. You know, I was like, yeah, just give me a date. Just pick one, man. <laughs> That's how I met my wife. So. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Zinger. So cheers. Got you here. We are enjoying apple juice whiskey, which is uh, sort of dangerous. Um, it is. Copper Kettle Belmont Farm Apple Whiskey. I'm just going to leave that there. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, it all started in 1991. <laughs> And then we'll fast forward. So basically, as you probably know, we went to high school together. Um, I used to uh, eat the French fries of everybody who sat at our table. Sure. Um, I graduated from high school and uh, went to James Madison University, where uh, I spent four years doing what all people do in college, which is going, I wonder what I want to be when I grow up. And then I did that, went to grad school after in my like very end of junior year deciding, oh, maybe I'll be a therapist because I don't know. I like talking to people. Went to grad school at William and Mary. Um, that went well. So I was like, okay, well, therapist it is. And here I am. I am a licensed professional counselor. I live and work in Fluvanna County, and I would consider myself a mental health generalist. Um, though I am trained in uh, marriage and family counseling, I work with people from, I don't have like a set cutoff age, but like from five to, I don't know, forever, I guess. Um, <laughs> so when you say you don't have a cutoff age, you mean literally you haven't picked one? Uh, I don't want to say I haven't picked one. <laughs> we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later, but um, I, I do a lot of my therapy more by like feel. So it's a lot of the assessing that I do. Yes, it is rooted in research and, you know, I am very well trained in diagnosis and recognizing these issues, but there's just certain things that like, I, I don't like when people are like, I don't work with anybody under eight or I don't work with anybody under 15. Cause it's like, I've talked to a lot of eight-year-olds who are mentally, cognitively on par with some of the 30-year-olds that I've talked to. And, you know, or like I'll talk to people who are 70 who are talking about the same problems that you might have as a 25-year-old. And putting those age ends on, I think, is a disservice to people who are looking for a therapist who fits what they want. Sure. Um, so it's more that I just say I work with children through – uh, late stage adults and I provide free consultations and whatnot. What made you really decide to commit to being a therapist though? I know you say that you're like, Oh, I, I like to talk to people, but like, what is it about yourself that made you actually do it? Um, well, I would like to say that a big part of it is that I recognize both through personal experience and through just observing the world around me, 
that the lived experience of every individual is unique and has its own kind of individual ups and downs that too often society or individual friends, family, people like that, they just look at that person and they're like, I didn't experience that. So why are you, why are you the way that you are? And I don't think that there's enough people in the world who will sit down with someone and stop asking the question why and start asking the question, well, what do you want? Like, who, who do you want to be? Who are you now? How do we accept who you are, where you are right now? But also, and also, I'm a huge believer in the word and instead of the word but, and also move towards ultimately what you're what you think your life should look like. And it's all, I just feel like there's this huge prevailing force of just be better, just be better, just be better instead of, Hey, you know, you're okay the way that you are and let's be better. Makes sense. Sure. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. It goes back to what we were talking about off camera before about, you know, good therapist, bad therapist. I mm-hmm. think, you know, the mindset makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about people who are, for a variety of reasons, they are unwilling or um, uninterested in seeking out therapy. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you kind of reach out to those people? Good question. Um, I am one of the things that I, I personally take pride in in the therapy that I do. Um, call it a humble brag if you want. I. <laughs> I really, really, really believe that there's a lot of people who end up in therapy who don't want to be there. And I don't want to be in a room with someone who doesn't want to be there. Sure. And I tell them that immediately upon meeting them because most people imagine their therapist and they're like, well, they're just trying to make a buck. Like they're in the business of misery. So, you know, they don't even care if I don't want to be here. They're just going to milk this thing or they just kind of shut down the second they walk in and they're like, well, I don't, I don't even care what this person has to say. And so for me, one of the reasons or one of the things that I do that I think is helpful is I will immediately be like, you don't look excited to be here, which immediately is kind of a bummer for me because I prefer to have good conversations with someone. And I immediately from that point will be like, well, what do you think you could even get out of this? Like it, you know, the court says that you need to do this or your mom says that you need to do this or your husband, wife, whoever says, hey, you need to be more like this. And I, I think that that's probably coming from, okay, there's some kind of skill deficit. There's some issue that's causing a disconnect, but what do you want? Right. And I think for a lot of people, when they meet a therapist, who's like, I don't really care who made you come here. Is there literally any area of your life where you feel like you could be different in a way that would be satisfying to you? A lot of people are immediately like intrigued by that prospect. Sure. Um, Because most of the people who come into therapy don't want to be in therapy. Assume the therapist works for someone else. The therapist is working for my mom. The therapist is working for my job who told me I need to stop drinking so much. My therapist, blah, blah, blah. And every person who comes into that room, I immediately address that issue by saying, I work for you. Now, if you come in here and say, you're fired, okay, 
Like, thank you for not wasting my time. Now, are there real, are there real world consequences for that? Yes. Your sure. job may say, hey, you needed to be here. You can't have this job anymore. Or your mom may say, okay, well, no PlayStation 5 for the next six months or until you go back into therapy. Well, that's anybody, though. Nobody's getting a PlayStation 5 for the next six months. <laughs> well, you know, if you want to pay $1,300 for the digital, you know, you can, you can get it. Not at, you know, manufacturer's price, but... I think you touched on something, though. I think the idea that a lot of people who come to therapy don't want to be there. And I think Mm -hmm. part of that is what I see in my work, and we were talking earlier, there's a lot of overlap uh, in clientele and things like that when you worked in in the CSB world. And what I found is that a lot of people are going to therapy because there's been an ultimatum Mm -hmm. of some kind. The ultimato. And nobody fucking enjoys that. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, you're going to not only establish an ultimatum, but it's something I already don't want to do Mm -hmm. that it's now being required of me. Like, you're telling me, okay, if you don't do this, our marriage is over, or if you don't do this, I lose this job, or I go to jail, or whatever it may be. Um, And so you're kind of cornering somebody from the Mm -hmm. get-go. Which is a really crappy place to start legitimate life (laughs) Starting in the hole. Yeah, like, no, I've, I've never been like oh, if I don't become this way, then, you know, then, you know, my wife will leave me or what my wife has never wanted to leave me. Just so everyone knows. Lindsay, I love you. Um, <laughs> you know, my wife will leave me or, oh, I'm going to fail this class, blah, blah, blah. I'm. It might light a fire under my butt to engage in a change in behavior for a week or a month or until the imminent threat is gone. Right. But I've never experienced that and then been like, wow, like this is really the kind of person I want to be. Like I'm just, I'm running away from something instead of running towards something. And it's just not a place to start any kind of meaningful change. Well, it's not really about you. You don't really necessarily want to change. A lot of those people, virtually all of them actually are Mm pre-contemplative. You know, they're not at the point where they even think a change is necessary, let alone something they want to participate in. Is that a little MI language? I am well-versed in the MI. Uh. (laughs) I would, if it's all the same to you, like to avoid MIing each other for three and a half hours. Um, I <laughs> as apologize. As exciting as that is, I actually, <laughs> as much as I believe in MI being the closest thing to witchcraft that exists, um, I usually actually don't. I, I mean, I like incorporate aspects of it, but I think you'll find yourself safe from me engaging in it too often. MI being motivational interviewing for anybody who wants to look it up. Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are times and places where it is very appropriate, and the tenets of it, I think, are well intentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it, the danger, I think, with it and with any interviewing technique is that if your if your buy in is not legitimate, then it comes off as very fake. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, through your body language, through your tone of voice, etc., are really projecting that you really couldn't give less of a shit about whatever this person's got going on. Then you reflect and be like, that's really hard for you. They're going to be like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I really think that what you're kind of hitting at too, is the difference between somebody who has legitimate empathy and ability to accept anybody where they are at any given moment. And somebody who has developed a skill set. Yeah. Um, there are plenty of therapists who are well versed in every, you know, type of skill needed to appropriately engage in interpersonal communication with another person mm-hmm. 
who I don't want to spend five minutes talking to. No, I they, talk they know to, how to do it. They're just very unpleasant people to speak to. I talked to a therapist who was big into MI. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, anecdotal experience, um, I wasn't there because I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I was there at the recommendation of, of family and my, my wife because I was, I've tangled with depression on and off. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was one time, it was, it was really stressful time at work. You know, we were down an officer, and so caseloads were out of control. Like, people were mm-hmm. just, their morale was low, so to speak. Um, and <laughs> she's a really nice lady. Don't get me wrong. Right. <laughs> Before I say all of the rest of it, I don't want you to think that, like, I think she's a bad person or, or a bad therapist. But I sat down and started talking to her because I was like, all right, if I have to be here anyway, I'm going to at least have a go at this, right? Mm-hmm. And... Some parts of it were very helpful. Some parts weren't so much. And, But I think part of the problem was that as a service provider who works in that field, you're already – you've seen behind the curtain, right? So, like, <laughs> yes. you under, you know all of the things that are about to be said to you, questions that are about to be asked of you. There's not very much mystery in it, right? Mm-hmm. And so in talking to her, she started right in – the reflections, the, you know, the summaries. And it's, it's, I thought I was like, I'm just going to save you a lot of time. I was like, I do this professionally. Like, this is not going to be helpful to it's me. Like, cut to the chase, please. Right. I was like, I would much rather you and I sit and have a human conversation. <laughs> yeah. I was like, cause if I, if I just wanted MI, I'd go look at myself in the mirror and talk to myself and reflect my own statements. Crack open a textbook. Right. I was like, for some people it's really helpful for me. It's not going to be, mm-hmm. and she didn't know what to make of it. It was like, it was like a complete shutdown. She was like, well, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily feel comfortable giving my opinions about it. Like, I don't need your opinion. I was like, mm-hmm. I just want you to talk to me like a normal person. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to be repeated to. I was like, I heard myself say it. I don't need you to hear. I don't need you to say it back. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. There's like a legitimate field for therapists for therapists right. or therapists for other mental health, right? You know, social services, those types of people. Because right, for like first said, responders, for military guys, like guys who are just not gonna, they're not gonna subscribe to that. Mm-hmm. And they, they know they can pick up on it. Yeah. And even more so when you talk with, like, cops. I love cops to death. You know, I, I'm still friends with a lot of the guys I used to work with. But, like, mm-hmm. they will cut through bullshit faster than any other human being I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Immediately, they're like, you're full of it. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just going through these motions. You don't believe what you're saying. You, And some of that, you know, is a detriment to you as a personality trait. You have to Be train genuine. yourself out of that. Um. But yeah, they will not sit and and have that. And honestly, those are my favorite kinds of clients. Yeah. Because the ones who come in and they're like, you understand me. Because I (laughs) I literally repeated back to them what they just said to me. (laughs) I there's value in that. I don't want to say that it's not something that's of value. But a lot of the time when you think of people who or like when you think of therapy when you look at therapy in movies when you see it in tv when you hear about it the person's like i've been in therapy for 30 years like this is the guy you gotta come here you gotta talk to them or like oh i couldn't live without my therapist and immediately my thought to that is they're a terrible therapist right because the whole goal of therapy is similar to when you go to a doctor. It's you come in, you diagnose that there's an issue present, and then you engage in treatment. Right. If I had to go to my doctor every week. Forever. Forever. 
I would really question right. that doctor. Right. Now, that being said, there are things that take prolonged treatment. So if someone has cancer, please see your doctor for longer than, you know, a month or six months or a year, depending on the course of treatment. If someone has significant mental health issues, please go see your doctor or your therapist for longer than three weeks or, you know, six months. People with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and all these personality disorders, they take lifelong treatment a lot of the time. Sure. If you have anxiety and you have been seeing a therapist for a very long time, a question that you really should ask yourself is, is this therapist teaching me how to live my life in a way that helps me manage my anxiety better? Or is my therapist a crutch who help? like every week I come in and I just get a boost? Like I came in, I was like, this person really understood me. I feel so loved and supported. And then you go home and you have no friends to support you, no family to support you. You don't get that anywhere else. Because a therapist, their job is to come in, treat an issue, and then help you find the support that you need to go on outside of therapy. Right, because ideally, like you had said, it's not a lifelong condition. Mm -hmm. Or even if it is, like anxiety, depression, things like that, they very well may be lifelong issues, but they need to be conceptualized as I'm currently in the struggle I've developed some tools. I've developed strategies for managing. Okay, I'm good. Like I tell, and this is one of my most common things I tell clients when they come in. I am not giving them a quick fix. They come in and they may say, my anxiety on a scale of one to 10 is a nine. I'm not promising in any way, shape, or form that the next time they see me in a week, they're going to be an eight or a seven or a six. And I have no idea how long treatment will take in a lot of situations. I, I have evidence-based treatments. I have strategies. I have skills to teach them. Everybody comes in in a different place. But I tell everyone that if they came in at a 9 or a 9.5, let's say they came in at 9.5, and then they come back next week and they're at a 9.4, that's great. Sure. Like, high five, you move the needle. What worked, what didn't work, let's assess the problem and move on. And then we'll slowly tick that number down until we get to the point where it's like, okay, well, I'm a seven. And then the question needs to be asked, is seven manageable? Right. Can life continue at a seven? Exactly. And if someone's like, yes, then I'll be like, okay, you know what? Let's see each other for a couple more weeks. Let's see if we can keep moving the needle. And let's make sure that you have lifelong supports in place. If your anxiety is existing and you are married or you know have close friends how do you engage with them over your anxiety how do you how do you find support in them without dumping on them nobody wants to be dumped on sure but how do you find the supports that you need so that you don't keep slowly ticking back up when your anxiety is unmanaged because people will find that one of the things that happens with anxiety depression things like that is it really has to do with momentum if you go a week without your anxiety in the back of your head you're still thinking i'm anxious right like, i'm an anxious person this is just how i am or it's on the horizon exactly and you think it's coming back. at any like when's the other shoe gonna drop right you get out a month and your anxiety has been manageable you're still you still have anxiety but you, you've been managing it you're still going out you're still you're successful in work you're managing all your responsibilities at home then your thought process starts changing from when is the other shoe gonna drop 
or, oh, I'm an anxious person to, okay, well, I worry about things, but that's okay. Right. Like I, I'm a successful person and that in and of itself is a huge step because a lot of the time people with anxiety are anxious about their anxiousness right? or people with depression are hopeless because of how hopeless they are. Sure. And so if you can create this track record of success, then you immediately attack one of the biggest issues that somebody's struggling with, with a mental health issue, which is how they feel about how they feel, which I guess is the most therapisty thing I've ever said. How do you no, feel about I... how you feel about how you feel? But ultimately that's what we're talking about is your self perception of your symptoms is a huge part of why people come to therapy. They've eventually crossed that threshold into, I don't like who I am. I don't like how it's affecting my life. Something's got to give. Right. Yeah. Or they've been given an ultimatum like we talked about. I mean, that's, that's the thing, you know, somebody else, their, their issue, while maybe they don't necessarily see it as being a major issue has become a huge issue for somebody else Mm -hmm. who they care about more than, they care about not dealing with it, or at least there's some conflict about it to where they're like, well, I really love my wife. You know, maybe I'm, I'm willing to do this to mm-hmm. keep this part of my life. Um, you know, and that person has made it very clear if the behavior doesn't change or if there's no effort that that's going to cease to be, which I'm sure, you know, in divorce cases, you probably see a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do see that. <laughs> no, I think it's, um, and I imagine this year has probably been good or or bad for business, <laughs> as um, it so happens. One of the uh, uncouth therapist jokes that frequently is kind of thrown around is like, we legitimately profit off of people suffering. Sure. Now, the person in me who wants all suffering to end, like any good person should, is like this is really sad. Like I hate seeing families torn apart. I hate seeing people struggle with depression and anxiety. I feel for my clients when they come in. I, it's a prerequisite for therapy. If you can't feel for your clients, you shouldn't be doing therapy realistically because it comes across as very ungenuine, very distant and it's not good. So there's a flip side to that too. (laughs) You don't want to carry their stuff home, right? (laughs) Which some people do. Yeah, and that and that's the thing. Like that's the every job has this, every profession has this. There's this tightrope that every person walks in their life of I need to care enough about what I do to be invested, but I can't let this thing control my life. I sure. have I have friends, I have family, I have kids, I have all of these things. I can't let this control me. I can't f- constantly cuz the thing is I'll meet with a client who is in a terrible spot. They're depressed. They're suicidal. Any given minute, they may, you know, they're thinking about, what if I kill myself? Their existence is hard. I would never want to be there. But for 45 minutes at a time, I need to put myself there so that I can feel what they're feeling and speak to them from my heart in a way to where they're like, oh, this person cares. They, they hear me, they understand me, and they're giving me practical solution. But then when I look over at my clock and I see that the little, or the big hand has hit, you know, the 45 mark, then I thank them for their time. I wish them luck. I talk to them about practically what they need to work on over the next week. And then I spend about 15 minutes putting my thoughts onto paper in a note, getting my head straight, 
and then closing the chapter on that book until next week. Yeah. I can't continue to think about that person when I meet with the next person. Right. And I can't take those two people and meet with a third person. And I can't go through an entire day of therapy carrying the three to seven people that I meet with home with me to my wife and kid. Sure. It's like, it will crush you. And it does crush therapists. It crushes anybody in this kind of field. And I think that's one of the dangers is that you get, you know, yeah, top yourself off there. Um, You get these folks who are very enthusiastic and very well-meaning and very well-intentioned. And um, they don't have the skill set to develop and maintain personal professional boundaries. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you throw them in with people who, particularly you see this at CSBs, like we were talking about earlier, um, not to name any names, but... Um, we love you, CSB workers. You have a very important job. You do. No, I mean, they, they, they're they doing the Lord's work, literally. Um, it is a thankless, underappreciated, underpaid job uh, yes, that I would never want, but... Decent benefits, though. <laughs> right, you know. And if you get into this line of work and you already don't have good compartmentalization skills or good personal or professional boundaries, uh, it will crush you mm-hmm. very, very quickly. It doesn't take long at all. Uh, the burnout is real. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality of it is, is even if you do have well-developed versions of those skills, there are going to be days where you're going to feel like, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting crushed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this is something I've been curious about since we actually set this up. How has all of the insanity of this year changed, contributed, or otherwise affected you in a professional way? Not professional. I was going to say, <laughs> what are we saying here? How are you oh. feeling, Devin? <laughs> I don't know how your client base works. So I don't know if it's strictly referral based or if you take walk-ins yeah. or I, I get a mix of everything. So, uh, you know, when we're talking about being a therapist, there's a very legitimate piece of it that is, I am also a business owner. Sure. So like, yeah, because you're in private practice. Exactly. I market, I, you know, I have to build relationships with community members. I, I, you know, when you think about like going back to the community services board as a, you know, government funded position, they have an immediate streamline of hospitals immediately refer to them, you know, doctors, all these people. It's just there's a built in referral source. So when I started my private practice, I needed to come in and say, OK, I have to be marketable. I need to be offering something that other therapists aren't. Or I need to also be able to be like, hey, I'm offering what some of these other really successful people offer, but they're full. <laughs> Yeah. And like it's the, less expensive. <laughs> well, you know, and I will pride myself on that. I th- There's this balance of I want to have people have access to therapy. I care. I think therapy is important. I think every person, if given the opportunity, should get in, engage in therapy. Do therapy accept, is not just for broken people. It's for anybody. Do you and accept Medicaid? I do. Very good. And so... Now, that being said, I don't accept Medicaid, all sure. of it. I accept certain, you know, we can get into the nuts and bolts of insurance if you want, but essentially, like, Medicaid is provided through Anthem or Optima. Or Magellan or, or exactly. Yeah. So I take certain certain insurance carriers who offer their Medicaid packages. I'm not blanketly cover, like, accepting Medicaid, and there's reasons for that. But 
I very strongly believe my self-pay rate is on the very low end of what most therapists would consider an appropriate rate for our area. And a lot of people would be like, oh, that's the low end of my sliding scale in some senses. And I don't say that to be like, oh, look at me. Like, I'm so amazing. It's a livable wage. Sure. I, I, I make enough money. I can provide for my family. But also, I... I worked in a CSB. I worked with high needs kids with significant issues. I worked in a nonprofit providing mental health services through the schools. And the number one issue I saw everywhere I went was there are not enough providers. Or it's too expensive. Yes, exactly. Or if there's enough providers, it is cost prohibitive. I've always wondered where people, uh, where the detachment is. Because you see people who are like otherwise very bright people that are like, oh, well, you know, this person didn't go to therapy. And the person's like, well, I can't afford it. And the court's like, well, you have to go. Mm-hmm. And they're like, right, but I can't afford it. And they're like, well, Region 10 has a sliding scale. They're like, mm-hmm. right, I can't afford that. Mm-hmm. And and so that's the thing. And what we're, <laughs> we could very quickly drift into the conversation about health care in our country because mental health is a is a sliver it is a piece of the pie of the big picture of health care sure and i will very quickly jump to the defense of health care or mental health care in that it is insanely misrepresented yeah. and and misunderstood and is inadequately covered by many many health insurance providers the number of health insurance providers that i run into will be like oh $20 copay to go see your doctor. Oh, a therapist. No, that, you know, that goes into the specialist category or that goes into this other area where you end up paying an exorbitant amount of money right. or like we don't even cover health care or mental health care, which technically is illegal in a lot of senses because there's parity laws in a lot of places. Right. But it's just people get around that they do carve outs and they do all this stuff, but you end up creating this system that's so impossible to navigate that the people who can afford it don't even try. And the people who can't afford it, even if they fought tooth and nail to get through every loophole and door and crazy, you know, whatever, they talk to the robot at, you know, this health care provider, the health insurance provider for seven hours, they eventually come to the conclusion that they couldn't afford it to begin with because they had a high deductible plan. That's because we want to give them drugs (laughs) instead of fixing their problems. Well, see, and that's the thing. Is one of the things I worked at Elk Hill for about four years. I strongly believe in their mission. And, um, you know, I I loved working for them. I I tell anybody who's going into mental health, like, work for Elk Hill. Work for Elk Hill. (laughs) I, I really strongly believe in what they do. And one of the main beliefs that they have is that as an organization, we need to swim upstream. We need to provide prevention services, not, I mean, and they do provide residential services. I'm not saying they don't provide that, but a huge emphasis that they were putting is community-based services. We need to go to the schools. We need to find the families and we need to provide a cost-effective alternative to going to a private practice. Because when you're talking about certain areas, Fluvanna, perfect example, there's three to five therapists in Fluvanna. Half of them are basically retired. They take a couple of clients. They try not to wrestle with insurance too much. It's not really worth it. Everybody who's left is full up. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, if you're paying out of pocket, which therapists prefer to take people out of pocket because you don't want to wrestle. I hate talking to insurance as much as the person who has the insurance. Sure. You know, but you have three providers to choose from for a community of thousands of thousands of people. Right. And at the end of the day, it's either cost prohibitive or there's just not enough to go around. Right. And the number in the last two months, kind of going back to your original question of how's COVID affected things. Yes. I've, I, I immediately had a drop off in business because a lot of therapists weren't ready for COVID when it hit. They didn't have telehealth options available. They didn't know what insurance was going to do with that. A lot of people just kind of panicked (laughs) and my, my practice, I, I did close my doors for like two months almost while I was weighing how long is this going to take? You know, I checked, I had told my clients if they need services, let me know. I would figure out something if people were in crisis, but anybody who was not in crisis, there would just, we were going to kind of take a break and we we're going to feel this out. I eventually moved to telehealth. I offered telehealth to anybody who needed it until I opened my doors back up. I personally see people in office now that may change with all, you know, the spikes and whatnot. Right. But I, I immediately, when I reopened my doors, I had about seven clients, which is not a lot, immediately hit a full caseload. Oh, yeah. Like within weeks. Of what is full for re- you? Full for me is 15 to 20. That's a lot. For And we can talk about this a little bit later, too. Depending on what type of work you do, yeah, it's a lot. Like, sure. if you think about it, I, I listen to 15 to 20 people's very difficult lives. Um, that is hard in and of itself. Um, it is not a full-time job. <laughs> yeah. Pay-wise, it's not a full-time job. Uh, work-wise, yes, it is a full-time job. Um, a lot of therapists are really shooting for that 25 to 30. Some as high as 35, 40, depending on how their businesses are structured and, you know, how hard, <laughs> how much of a life they're willing to have outside of the work they do. But for me, I, I um, and I'm really open with this about my clients, I, I'm a stay-at-home dad. Yeah. I wake up. I spend all day with my kids. My wife comes home from work. She works for the county. Um, We high five each other. I walk out the door. I work from four to seven, um, Monday through Friday. I occasionally see people on Saturdays and on Thursdays I have extended hours. Literally every hour that I have is taken by some facet of my business yeah, or my personal life. And so you know, the, and that's direct client contact. I see a client for 45 minutes. I do 15 minutes of notes. Boom. I've got another client. And so there's other aspects of it though. I I'm taking referrals. I'm doing consults. I'm doing case coordination. All of that stuff has to happen outside of my direct client contact hours, which I have very limited of Mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of things. So I end up being at home with a child in my lap, you know, talking to lawyers and talking to doctors and doing all of this stuff and trying to do intakes for these people who desperately need services and trying to figure out how do I squeeze them in to the schedule. And that just sucks. And and a lot of people are going through that. You know, I, I have limited numbers of space, but even the people who have tons of space, they're full. Yeah. And they're trying to juggle the same thing. You You know, when COVID started, initially there was this kind of drop off. People are like, oh, well, I'm home. I'm not working. A lot of my stress is gone. And everybody got their stimulus, you know, at some point. Yeah. Um, And a lot of the people that we see are like, oh, we've got money. We've got time. We're spending it with our wives and our husbands and our kids. And so many of these issues are better. And it's like, great. And then two months goes by and it's like, 
I think I want to strangle my kid. <laughs> like, I don't think I can look at my wife for another second. And so there was this kind of drop off where everyone's like, life isn't stressful at all. Mm-hmm. And then life got really hard because, yeah. you know, people were kind of getting the quarantine crazies. Right. And then, you know, so there was a little uptick, but, you know, trickling in. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, everybody go back to work. Yeah. Okay, everybody, you know, we got to figure out school. School started like, you know, regardless if you're in person or virtual, school started. Mm-hmm. And school is usually a big boon for a lot of therapists anyways because kids go to school and they actually have to be structured and, yeah. you know, there's more expectations and more pressure. So a lot of the time either kids or parents need a little bit of support with that, which is totally fine. That was amplified by like a 1,000 with COVID. Yeah. On top of we're still quarantining, okay, now the money's running out, all of this stuff is happening – and you're starting to see this cumulative effect that a lot of people weren't ready for in any kind of way. And therapists had no way to prepare for that. I, I had no ability to provide extra slots. None I don't of think my friends did. anybody was prepared for it. Therapy, restaurants, retail businesses. Yep. I mean, you know, the American economy is not built to sustain indefinite periods of lockdown. We're not really designed to have any kind of period of lockdown. Right. And then, you know, it's, that's, it's a sad reality. And, you know, this is why a lot of my family refers to me as a socialist, but like, (laughs) I I mean, I look, I look around and I see, you know, I see the way that society is structured and this is not just financially, it's in all ways. People are oriented towards, I want it and I want it now. Right. Right. I, you know, and the internet hasn't done anything to dissuade that. No, it is not. (laughs) You have, you have, we're at a point in society and and historically where you can pick up basically a computer that you carry around your pocket and you can learn anything about any topic that has ever existed in the history of time instantaneously. Mm -hmm. It is never ending stimulation, it is never ending bombardment of Mm -hmm. essentially what amounts to propaganda. Yeah. Between news and um, social media and advertisement. Right. Advertising. Mean, it's it's never ending stimulation. Mm-hmm. And if you ever think that you're not affected by it personally, because I know people who have that fallacy and you're silly, <laughs> go camping for a week and don't take your phone or take your phone and go somewhere where there's no phone reception. I went to West Virginia on a motorcycle trip, I guess about probably about a year ago now. And we were in Laurel Fork in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's middle of fucking nowhere. Your I have last, no idea where that is, but I'm it sure is it's literally really nowhere. So, so you, to get to the actual campground, it's a mile, or not a mile, it's about an hour, rather, um, of just straight off-road, like dirt. You know, it's not even like a poorly maintained road. It's just there is a lack of road. Uh, there's something that looks kind of like less, you know, than forest. That's what the road is. It's like a hiking trail. Right. So we, we went there. Um, the campground is at like four or 5,000 feet elevation. It's pretty It's pretty high up in the mountains of West Virginia. And there's no cell reception. You're an hour from cell reception in any direction. Um, and so the second day of the trip, I just left my phone in my tent because it didn't do anything. I couldn't make calls or text anybody or, mm-hmm. you know, and it didn't serve any purpose. So I just left it in the tent. Insane. Freedom. Right. You know, you're like, fuck, this is what it was like before all of this before the 90s <laughs> right you know and 
Uh, but it's it's crazy. It's mm-hmm. crazy that we have all of this just never-ending shit. And then you mm-hmm. add lockdowns and an election, <laughs> and which people are already not particularly prepared for. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just insane. Mm-hmm. It's no wonder that people are, are having such a hard time with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the way I think about it is, and you know, we can look at this culturally, we can look at this as the effect of technology, you know, fiscally, whatever you want to look at it. If you spoke to someone even 50 years ago, right, 60 years ago, you know, let's push it before World War One. I, I don't know. If you said, you don't need to prepare for next week, right. you don't have to have the food on hand. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know how you're going to take care of XYZ. They'd be like, well, I hope you're cool being dead. Right. And now it's just like, well, tomorrow will take care of itself. Yeah. You know, like I have this salaried job now, so I just assume that the next month will be taken care of. Right. I, you know, I have my insurance plan, so I'm protected from XYZ. And, and that's a good thing. That's not, I don't want to look at, talk to people and say, oh, it's bad that we have salaries or it's bad that we have these like comforts because it's not bad. Security is a good thing. But what it does, if you're not careful, is that idea of security matched with instant gratification immediately cultivates complacency. Sure. I am a victim of that. <laughs> you can, you can, you can talk to, to an extent. Yeah. And, you know, and I recognize that, but that's ultimately what we're looking at is we become complacent in the, I'm going to get what I want when I can get it immediately. And then we'll figure out the rest later. Exactly. And so you see a company like this is, you know, what drives me crazy with the big bailouts or whatever. when we're talking about these big companies, they're making money hand over fist, billions and billions of dollars. Sure. But the mentality is take it out now. Take the money now. Pay out your investors. Pay your CEOs. You know, if you have money on hand, then it means that's money you're not earning. Right. And so you immediately reinvest. You immediately do this. And what ends up happening is you have no foundation for COVID or, you know, for what happens when there's no oil? What happens when there's no XYZ? People aren't ready for shifts. That's somebody else's problem. I've been assured that we'll be dead before we run out of oil. (laughs) That would be ideal. Well, and so, and that's the thing. People feel that way, but I'm immediately sitting here going, that's my son's problem. Like, that's my daughter's problem. Yep. Or, you know. Well, the reality of it for the United States, though, is it'll be the rest of the world's problem. I mean, seriously. Like, if we're we're being real about it, you know, it's going to be people in India and people in China's problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, The United States will never suffer in any particularly dramatic way well maybe we'll suffer right you know inconveniences for sure but i uh <laughs> so one of my best friends jordan breeding um he was having a conversation with someone online and there was that conversation about raising the minimum wage mm-hmm. which, you know people go back and forth on it and it's whatever but the person he was talking to was like hey if we raise the minimum wage instead of spending four bucks at taco bell you're gonna have to spend nine dollars are you trying to spend nine dollars at taco bell for a taco because they have to pay that person more and we're like well yeah <laughs> like i'll pay nine dollars for a taco <laughs> if it means that the man handing me a taco can pay for his health care or yeah. you know his home but the idea behind that is we look at it and there's this division of oh if we if we make it to where people have enough 
if we have a cushion, even if, you know, even if Taco Bell doesn't pay that person $15 an hour, but they say, hey, if COVID happens or if, you know, something happens, we'll continue to pay you right. until things settle down, then society immediately goes, oh, well, they're going to pass that on to someone else. While, you know, the the chihuahua in charge of Taco Bell is still taking home the money that he was going to make. He, mm-hmm. he has cannibalized the cushion. Right. Because, you know, bad things don't happen to Taco Bell. Like, right. They're going to have the money later. Yeah, I think that's the, the double-edged sword of capitalism that a lot mm-hmm. of pro-capitalists don't really like to endorse. Um, and they think that if they ignore it, it just ceases to exist. So like capitalism is not, I don't think, inherently good or evil. I think it is indifferent. Yes. Um, and the problem is that indifference is just as, if not more dangerous in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, capitalism is entirely self-sustaining and it is entirely self-profiting. Mm-hmm. And it will find the most innovative and efficient ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that almost exclusively comes at the expense of poor people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I 100% is, agree. That is a reality of the system. Mm-hmm. And it's perpetuated by the belief that a poor person become a rich person at any time. Like, oh, yeah. it's just like, if you work hard enough, you, right. you'll be less poor, and then you don't have to care about poor people either. Yeah. And and that's the thing, is that I... <laughs> it's like, do you, you obviously read a lot. Have you ever read The Time Machine by H.G. Wells? I have not. So The Time Machine is a, it's a, basically the long story short of it, it's this guy who's a scientist who develops time machine he travels to the future and um there's it's obviously more complicated than this it's a long book but mm-hmm. um he it's the book was written as like a, a referendum on the golden society and so he travels to this place where everything's great and everything's a utopia and this that and the other and then uh he comes to find out that it's all basically fake and that the underground are the morlocks which are these <laughs> like uh like mutilated subhuman versions of of the rest of the people and the species that runs this city um but it's crazy how you know we we dehumanize poor people Mm -hmm. it's absolutely nuts and people do it without meaning to it's Mm -hmm. so ingrained that the idea is that if someone is poor um they either deserve it Mm -hmm. uh, because they've done something or they've made some set of decisions that put them there um, which may or may not be partially true um, yep. or that, like you had said, if they just worked really hard and if they just, <laughs> if they you just pull yourself up right, by your bootstraps, if you just focused really hard it's like, you know, if you try not being poor, I mean, that's, that's how people think about it. Mm-hmm. Like if you really just thought about not being poor, have you tried that? You know? And it's like, <laughs> it's like, did you try getting a job? Not at Walmart. And right. It's like, well, you realize there's a lot of um, money that you invest in being someone right. who's not poor anymore. Like education, and, resources, they take money. But it's easy, you know, and that and the dehumanization is one of the big things that keeps things like single payer healthcare mm-hmm. from being brought to fruition. That and of course a, a number of other political issues. But mm-hmm. um it's because it's easy to demonize what you perceive to be people who make bad decisions, Mm -hmm. aren't smart, you know, don't follow the plan. And so Mm -hmm. they are entirely to blame for what's happening to them. Yep. Financial success in our country has become an issue of morality versus an issue of providing opportunity and education and essentially just belief 
that when people given the time, money, opportunity, that they would make something of themselves, that they they would want, like, that they could be successful if given the chance. Well, and what kills me is the reverse line of thinking, which is I have loads of clients who are quite literally homeless drug addicts. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not a derogatory term. That is their literal state. They are homeless drug addicts. And they (laughs) cling to the belief that they are this close to hitting it big mm-hmm. and that all of their problems are about to go away. Mm-hmm. And I'm well, like, and my God, give me some of whatever it is you're doing. So, and, but that's the thing like that it's, people are fooled on both sides. Yeah. Well, that's like, that is the thing with capitalism God, this is good. Is really good. <laughs> that is the thing with capitalism. That's like, it's kind of like the drug aspect of it. Right. It's like, if I, if I'm not high, I could be high soon. <laughs> like if I just, if I got lucky, I could, I could become rich. I, right. like I was talking to somebody the other day and I was like, the, the value of a dollar decreases after you have met all of your needs. Yeah. And like there's a lot of research that points to this where it's like, after you make X amount of money, sure, this doesn't make you any happier because it provides nothing for you. Right. And if anything, it makes you less happy because you had to work extra. You dedicated more of your life to this thing that provides no value. Right, there's a point of diminishing returns. Exactly. And so when I when I talked to this person, I was like, is there no part of you that's like wealth to the point of Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, more Jeff Bezos than anybody. But like when you talk about wealth Literally, to that degree. I think he has more than anyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you talk about wealth to that degree, when does it become a morality issue? Sure. That the, this person values the insane amount of wealth that they have over the lives of another person. And this person, very strong capitalist, and they're like, well, they worked for that money. They earned that money. Like, who are you to take it away? I, I agree. I agree that they had an idea that they did some work. But the other piece of it is what they did was they created a system to benefit off of other people's work and to not be held accountable right. for making sure that they earned the fruits of their labor. That's really what we're talking about here. Yeah, and I'm about as I'm about as right wing as it gets on some issues. Um, mm-hmm. I've I think that I am pro capitalism in a lot of ways i think that there are real tangible benefits to things like innovation and industry and competition um that on the overall scale of a country can't really be denied there's Mm -hmm. a reason that we have some of the most innovative systems in the world in certain categories and a lot of it has to do with capitalism that's again that's one side of the sword it's one edge um but some of it's almost (laughs) intentionally obtuse Mm mm-hmm you know, where you're like, you got to be fucking kidding me, man. When people say shit like that, they're like, well, you know, that the, this person, you know, wealthy people should be able to have as much money as they want. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, they'll never cease to be wealthy if that's what you're worried about. If you're worried about this <laughs> hypothetical rich person having to live among the poors, you know, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like this is, <laughs> you're talking about like French Revolution levels of wealth, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, don't worry. He's going to be okay, you know, but it's like. <laughs> Jeff Bezos will not live. <laughs> right. In low-income housing, I right. promise. You'll never live close enough to see any of his houses. Don't worry. You know? mm-hmm. But it's like, at a certain point, if you set all of the like ideological bullshit aside, it's like, you can know when something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, when something's morally right and wrong. Mm-hmm. 
You'd be like, no, nobody needs a hundred fucking billion dollars mm-hmm. or a trillion dollars or however many it is. I'm sure there's some Saudi prince somewhere that has a water park in his backyard that, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> they need the water park. Right. So let's not, well, let's let's not back get it. it up a little bit. <laughs> You're starting to sound a lot like a communist. <laughs> but no, it's like, come on, man. Like, you know, we're in the country where we can drop a JDAM on a terrorist anywhere in the world in like, Mm-hmm. two hours but we can't give fucking poor people medicine mm-hmm. so you I, hitting me my favorite way to talk about this discussion is so veterans mm-hmm. deserve respect one million and ten percent and i think who they'd settle for country, a va that works well actually. yeah so but here's the thing this is this is the thing that drives me crazy when we talk about veterans there's this constant back and forth of, oh, the left hates the veterans. Oh, the right loves the veterans. Oh, these people, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's 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 back and forth all the time. It's this constant tennis match. When you look at the amount of money it would take to feed and house all of the homeless and unfed veterans in the United it's States. It's nothing. Absolutely nothing. Right. We get in this war of words over this ideology of, well, you know, the poor deserve to be poor or, you know, it, you know, it's a mental health issue. It's a blah, blah, blah issue. Blah, blah, blah. We, we want to point the finger so often. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we look at it and it's like if Jeff Bezos, you know, I'm not saying he has to do this, but if Jeff Bezos was forced, the government came to him and he held a gun to his head and was like, hey, you have to pay <laughs> We're for taking... all of these veterans to eat and live for the rest of their lives. It wouldn't be like a one percent of his income. Right. He could house them in right. beautiful and sh- tiny houses and develop sustainable gardens and feed them and blah blah blah. Yeah. And it wouldn't it wouldn't he wouldn't bat an eye. He wouldn't miss it. In exchange for being able to continue to pillage the American consumer. Exactly. You and, now have to do a little bit. Yeah. And so and the thing is I'm not saying that he I'm I, I don't want people to be like, Oh, good Devin's a crazy socialist. I'm not saying that. What I want people to really develop an understanding of is the the scale, right. the obscene the, scale is the economy wealth. of scale because yeah. they people conceptualize, but they have no idea how much a billion dollars is. Oh, yeah, it's like it reminds me of Austin Powers, you know, yeah. the part where he's yeah. like, I need a million dollars, and they, they open it, and it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. that, but then like when, like, or no, it was in Dodgeball when he opens the briefcase oh, yeah. with a like fifty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars, and it's like, it's like a, stack. a single sack of money. Yeah, and it's just like we, we talk about these numbers, and we're yeah. like, oh, well, to feed and house all of the veterans in the U.S. would take you know ten million dollars or thirty million dollars or you know whatever. I don't know how much it would actually take. It ends up being a small percentage of right. how much money some of these people take home, and so what you end up looking at here is you have people with this insane amount of wealth who ultimately look at the veterans and go, no, I'll sit on it. Yeah, I'm good. Like, like I I actually already invested this in my (laughs) giant gold pile that my dragon sits on. And I, I, you know, like, you know, maybe one day. Or like... When Jeff Bezos came out and they're like, he donated this obscene amount of money to save the rainforest. And everyone's it was like, like $10 million. Well, it was more. It was a lot. It was like something like a billion dollars over wow. X amount of years. And you're like, what? That's an insane amount of money. Now he only has 109. Yeah. <laughs> What's they it? were like, it was the largest ever by a country or a man no. to save the rainforest. And people immediately were like, well, there's capitalism at work. Like he did it. 
Like this is why we have capitalism, capitalism. at work is the fact that it's one hundred nine billion dollars yeah, left. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and so, like, if if we really looked at it, like Jeff Bezos has the power to do so much good in the world. Sure. And this is this is really where like the heart of capitalism. So does his ex-wife now actually? A- exactly. Incidentally, <laughs> capitalism. So she you got know, thirty-six billion. It's an insane and amount then of divorce. money. So what we're what's, looking what's at. What's really here, funny? I'll let you get to that in just a second. Sure. When they divorced, that was half. A year later, COVID hits, and he's up to one hundred and seven billion. Yeah, he's like, I don't know, whatever. I'll get a new yeah. wife. <laughs> I'll pay. I'll pay her triple what you got. <laughs> so, you know, you look at it. And you're like, you know, politics aside, Jeff Bezos has the power, the ability to do so much good. Sure. And he doesn't. No. He does some good. I I in no way want to detract from the fact that there are billionaires who do really good things. I don't know. I could buy like a, I was looking at vacuum sealed jars earlier on Amazon. I could buy one and have it on my doorstep tomorrow morning. That's pretty awesome. That is pretty cool. (laughs) So, and I actually had a long conversation <laughs> with someone about this that I, I probably won't get into, but it, he has the power to do amazing amounts of good, life-changing, pulling tons of people out of poverty. Like, and w- when you look at these things, they're not like these single issues. Poverty is a major indicator of mental health issues. Poverty sure. is a major in- indicator of health issues. So when you talk about, oh, let's feed and home the veterans we're not just talking about feeding and homing veterans we're talking about alleviating the va's resources right we're talking about making sure that kids whose parents are homeless veterans are able to have opportunity that they have a home that they have access to education that they have access to food and what you immediately see is this ripple effect going back to what i was talking about with elk hill about that idea of swimming upstream right providing Food and shelter is swimming upstream to the nth degree. Now, how you go about that, I'm not gonna like. I'm not gonna go on my you know political treaties about that. But like, you ultimately, what we're looking at, capitalism, socialism, whatever we're talking about, ultimately boils down to how do we swim upstream and meet the basic needs of human beings so that they can be the most successful and best contributors to a society that they can be. Capitalism can provide that. Like what you were saying, capitalism is not good or bad. It is neutral. But in the hands of immoral people, capitalism is evil. Socialism is not good or bad. Socialism is just a way of going about things. But in the hands of evil, immoral people, it is not a good thing. You look at, you know, Venezuela's perfect sure. example when you talk about it to the point of being a straw man almost where it's like oh well you know if joe biden's president then we're all gonna end up like venezuela in a year and we're gonna spend 30 bucks on a loaf of bread there are some key differences <laughs> <laughs> yes and so and what you look at is and this is one of my major beliefs politically i um Treebeard put it best i'm on no one's side because no one's on my side Lord of the Rings reference. Oh, I got you. I'm sure you did. But all the people out there, you know, whoever, I don't know how many people watch this. I assume millions. What we're really talking about here is not, is capitalism good? Is socialism good? What we're talking about is whether or not accountability is present. Which it's not. It's not. So you look at Venezuela. 
Venezuela, when they became socialist, was a wildly successful country. They Because they were sitting on natural oil reserves, which essentially was a bottomless pit of money. Right. Now, Venezuela did not fail because they were socialist. They failed because a socialist leader had no accountability and did nothing in the way of maintaining the long-term sustainability of their profit stream. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like when you have corrupt dictatorial regimes— they're going to do mm-hmm. corrupt dictator things. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, like, and that's the thing. <laughs> Dictatorships aren't inherently bad. Like, if you have a benevolent, no, we've totally quite a moral. Few well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Like, if you have a moral, benevolent dictator, and I'm not, in, you know, when you say moral, it immediately becomes this, like, buzzword dog whistle for a lot of different things. Because it's like, oh, are we talking about Christian morality, Islamic morality, blah, blah, blah. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about... People are fed, people are sheltered, people have the ability to choose for themselves on issues of, you know, religion and things like that. You know, if you you could have a dictator who supports all of those things and you could have a successful country if they were a business business minded, you know, good person. If like one person was making all the decisions for the U.S. and they're like, hey, you know what? let people like when it comes to this, let them do what they want. When it comes to this, let's have some regulations in place. You know what? We make a lot of money off of natural oil. Let's make sure that we do that as efficiently as possible. Like going back to Venezuela, there's all this research that came out where it was like, they were so inefficient at processing oil that they were hemorrhaging money. Right. And they did that because the guy was like, we'll put all the money in the hospitals. So everybody's like, Oh yeah, we have money in hospitals. But then what ended up happening is they toilet paper yeah exactly they (laughs) so they they put all that money there and then over time their system for having more money entirely deteriorated and then the system collapsed so it it wasn't you know hugo chavez could do that just as quickly as congress could yeah if they don't allocate money to infrastructure which we're not doing right now (laughs) like congress is ignoring our infrastructure just as much as any dictator or any communist or capitalist or anybody could do if it's not their priority right because their priority is never you know and this is another thing that i I recommend people kind of get into when they first start talking about like politics and you know about when they ask me um you know what do you think the first thing you could do if you're king for a day you know you change about u.s politics i was like campaign finance reform number one yes Everybody like, is nothing like, nothing else changes until that changes. Campaign finance reform and redistricting. No, I mean like fair the, districting are like the only things that politically I care about at all. Well, the campaign finance is such an interesting one because you say that people are like, Oh yeah, I know, and they give you this look and you're like, Do you know what that means? <laughs> like they don't want to sound stupid, so they don't say anything, but it's like you know, it's it's not even just rich people giving a lot of money to politicians. It's so much more insidious than that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the fact that basically 400-ish families in the United States decide who's going to be president. Yeah. Every every four years. It is, um, it is disgusting. And it's all done through nominations and through the two-party system. And so the reality of it is, is that, yeah, we get to vote for the people that the other people whose opinion matters have already picked for us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the we were predestined to come down to these people. You know, when you mm-hmm. think about like they're like, oh well, you know, the Democratic primaries. You know, we could do this that, and the other. It's like, no, 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 no. You get to vote 
for whoever you want of the ones we've already picked for you. Yeah. And then and then that process in and of itself is already essentially predetermined. Like right. for all of the crap that polls are getting right now, you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into that. But people know how generally things are going to go. They know which order right. the primaries are held in. They know which ways certain people are going to lean. They So they immediately are like, okay, well, you have Joe Biden, you have Jennifer Warren, you have all these people. Well, this is the order that the states are going to start picking, and this is the order people are going to start dropping out in. And then, right. you know, if this state immediately swings heavy this way, well, that's going to kill the enthusiasm for other people. Yeah. And so I, I watched this video that I actually really liked where they were kind of talking about, like, say the U.S. electorate is 100 pennies. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, like, 20% of the population picks who the next president is, if that. Sure. Because it's like, okay, well, we went to New Hampshire, and 50% of the Republicans in New Hampshire liked Trump. Mm -hmm. And then we go here, and then, okay, well, 40% liked him, but then the, the rest was split within, like, six people. And so you do that process, and over time, when you actually look at the people, the pennies, who were like, oh, there's Trump, 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 you get down to the end, and it's like, okay, well, actually, only, like, 15% of the country actually liked this person. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, they won the primary, so now the other 45% or – that was terrible math. The other 35% mm -hmm. of the country has to line up behind what the 15% decided or else you're a bad Republican or you're right. a bad Democrat. And, there, you know, this idea that we if – if you don't line up behind your party's guy – then you're a bad person. It's always amazed me how problem. people feel entitled to your vote. Oh, yeah. Not candidates. Just regular people. Yeah. If you... I, I posted a meme some time ago before the election. It was like... Uh, I don't remember what it was like. Somebody, you know, when I talk about getting rid of the two-party system, and they're like, oh, yeah, for sure. And then you're like, that same person, when I tell them I'm voting for their third party, <laughs> they just, like, go berserk. Mm -hmm. Um but it is so crazy and the the polarization and the tribalism has just gotten unbelievable oh it's insane uh in the last probably i'd say four years five oh, yeah. years maybe um but the the system to the point of being just outright irrational but that's that's what you kind of see when you look at systems that don't have regulation in place and I know regulation is immediately a dog whistle for the right to be like, that's no, a, that's or the a left. dirty word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the idea behind regulation is you don't want to swing any direction too right. far. You don't want to swing left or right too far when we're talking about certain things that we do in our system of government. Dark money, campaign finance reform, those issues are a perfect example of what happens when you deregulate that process americans should be able to decide who the next president is my ten dollars should be able to be taken into consideration versus you know soros's or jeff bezos's or any person with this large amount of money i should be able to have a say and it's insane that this idea of like these grassroots movements that come up the ones that were like propelling bernie sanders it's insane to me that you can have a wildly successful movement where lots and lots of people are very energized and, and very excited. And you still excited. get dunked on in the primaries. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. And, you know, in this, I just, 
it drives me crazy because ultimately what we're talking about here is there there we're failing to hear the voices of americans we're going to sit here and point fingers regardless if you're left or right you know in 2016 there were democrats who were like oh the elections weren't fair in 2020 it is a commonly held right position that the elections aren't fair we're going to sit here and point fingers at the presidential election and be like this isn't fair this this is a failure of democracy that's a feature not a bug yeah yeah It, it that failure of democracy is not that there were votes that weren't counted or that there were votes that were counted that shouldn't. It's that these are the people that we were even voting on. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing you have to go, you have to go back to the beginning to realize that, you know, you're, I think the best way I ever put it is, you know, you're not playing Monopoly, you're playing Candyland (laughs) and you don't realize it. (laughs) Yes. You know, the idea that you have the ability to make real effect in this game is really adorable. You know, it's the fact that you're actually just drawing cards and going mm-hmm. along a pre-constructed path for mm-hmm. yourself. But but I will say that we we have the ability to not play Candyland. I don't. It's that we as a as a society have chosen to play Candyland. Right. It's in apath- a lot of sense, it's apathy. We we've decided we're either Democrat or you know liberal or sorry Democrat or conservative. You know, if we as a group of people were able to go, gerrymandering's wrong, political finance reform needs to be done, we need to level the playing field for all representatives, for all people running for office. We need to have term limits. We need to do these things that Hmm. make it to where these things can't be taken advantage of. We would immediately play a different game. So the problem is the people who have the ability to affect that change, have the least incentive to affect that change. That's that's the issue. It's that 100% the when, is the issue. When people don't understand that this is, it's not an accident, it's by design. But that's the thing. The whole thing is by design. Is It is possible to make those changes based on how our country is structured in that you are able to bring state representation forward that is not the man. It, it is possible to do that. But what ends up happening is non-political or bipartisan issues are politicized as quickly as possible to make it to where people don't want to agree. Anti-gerrymandering laws are in no way something that should be looked at as this is like, this, like this is a partisan issue. It should be looked at as equal representation, but immediately what you'll see is in states like Virginia, there's this push against like anti-gerrymandering laws because Northern Virginia, Richmond, and Virginia Beach and Norfolk gets to carry the vote for the entire state. Or like, you know, the same thing when you look at other states that lean more red, Arizona is actually going to turn into a really good example of this soon. Yeah you'll see that it is the benefit of the party in charge to be like, oh, you know, let's, let's squash this. This is immediately going to become a partisan issue. Sure. But we need, as, as a people, we need to be able to look past certain things because what ends up happening is we politicize unpolitical things and then we never get to talk about the political issues that matter. Yeah, so I, mean, I think uh, I think a really good example of that is um, I think guns is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you will lose. And I tell my brother this all the time. I'm like, man, if you guys would just fuck off on guns, you could have me. I was, like, I was like, I'm there, man. Like, I'm at the door. Like, I'm on board for single-payer health care. Uh, I'm on board for gerrymandering laws. I'm on board for campaign finance reform. Like, I have no issues whatsoever with gay marriage. Um, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. but it's such a strange hill to die on, you know, where you're like, and it's one of those things that <clears throat> it's it's a left, you know, political talking point, just like, you know, socialism is for the right. It's something that ultimately it's never really going to happen. Mm-hmm. But damned if they don't bring it up every single election mm-hmm. because it rallies the base. It gets people out to the polls um, and it brings in campaign donations. Yeah. And like what you were saying, <clears throat> I think is really important. There's a difference between going at the Second Amendment sure. and going at common sense gun laws. So there you can say so it's good that we're getting into this like four or five drinks in. Yeah. This is going to be fun. Because the thing is, like, you know, like what we had talked about before we started, there are people who have access to guns where everybody had their hooks in them and nobody did anything. Right. And so what we're kind of talking about here is like, you know, I I have family members that are strong pro second amendment people. Yeah. And I'll tell them I'm all for you having a gun. I, I actually feel a little bit safer with certain people in my family who have guns. I am not anti gun. But when we end up in this huge discussion where it's either or, right? it's either we have everybody has a gun or nobody has a gun, well, then you're twisting people's arms into being like, well, I don't want that person to have a gun, so no one should. Right. I, I know plenty of people who should have guns, you know, like farmers who are protecting their livestock and people who hunt and, you know, people who legitimately are defending themselves. There are people who do that that I'm like, yeah, that's great. And then kind of going back to what we were talking about with my line of work, I have clients who I'm like, why the hell do you have a gun? Right. Like you're in here because you were brandishing a firearm and nobody has taken it from you. you know? <laughs> like you still have it. Or you, I or I'll have clients who are like, oh, well, you know, like I'm, I, I was accused of a federal crime, you know, when I was 18. So I technically can't have a firearm or ammunition, but I don't, you know, I'll just go out of the state and buy some things and I'll come back and it's whatever. Yeah. And it's like, that's an issue. And that same client is someone where it's like, you're, you drink a lot. Yeah. Like you're, you have moments where you lose your temper you have threatened people with firearms before. And then there's just this agreement though, that the person you threatened is like, Oh, we can't talk about it because then someone's going to take your guns. And if they take your guns, they might take my guns. And it's like, right. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, there are people who are unsafe in their current state. And there are people who are not, but the way that the two party system works is the gray area doesn't exist. And as a therapist, gray area is all I work in. (laughs) So it's like, if we say those things, then we immediately destroy any chance of a nuanced discussion. So I think the the issue is is in the nuance, and I can come at this from somebody who's on the other side of the issue. The the big the primary driving forces between the hysteria for the right with guns is that number one, I think there is a fundamental belief. There's essentially two ways of looking at that particular issue. The first is that the Second Amendment kind of purists who look at it as okay. This was put into our constitution specifically for the purpose. And and there are writings by the people who wrote the constitution that articulate that people have guns to protect themselves and potentially overthrow tyrannical forms of government. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, 
they just fucking done it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it was, it was You don't want thing. to be like, but don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> right. They were like, they were very specific. They're like, yeah, we just finished this shit. <laughs> like, so we're going to make sure that this is in there. Um, you know, and so it's more of like a, a conceptual, almost um, sort of principled view of it. You know, is that it's an inherently American right and virtue to be able to independently defend yourself, your property, your family against whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. The communists. Right. And the government who we allow to regulate our guns. It's like, <laughs> it's like when people are like, oh, well, you know, this and the other. I'm like, yeah, I hate to break it to you, man. Washington Jefferson would have turned this ship over fucking a long time ago. It's like, if that's your argument, like they were talking about fucking import tax on tea. <laughs> they weren't talking about like the fucking NSA and spy programs. Like, mm-hmm. but I digress. Um, and then what also doesn't help is that there are very loud, very vocal people on the left who are saying no, because for a long time, the, the sort of line for the party was nobody's coming to take your guns. You're being ridiculous. You're being irrational. And then you have people like Beto O'Rourke who are like, no, we're actually coming for your fucking guns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and this is a presidential primary candidate, right? So this is somebody who is not that Beto was ever really in danger of being elected president, but you know, this is somebody who on the national stage has now flipped that narrative. And again, like the conspiracy theory stuff we were talking about, it just plays into the mentality. They're like, mm-hmm. what? He just fucking said it right on national television. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the reality of it is that there is a, it's, it's become a partisan issue in a really bizarre kind of way because people will say that, you know, we don't accept this or, you know, the second amendment not to be infringed, this thing there, but you know, there's a long history of infringements on the second amendment. You can't buy machine guns. You can't buy suppressors without going through extravagant levels of paperwork and, and all other manner of nonsense. But, um, it's like, okay, but you, we have historically done that. Like the precedent is that we, we have had incremental restrictions on, on all sorts of rights. You know, there are Mm -hmm. restrictions on everything in the bill of rights. You know, I can't go into, a movie theater and be like, I have a bomb. <laughs> and then when they arrest me, be like, it was my right to say it. <laughs> you know? like, mm-hmm. Even if I didn't actually have one, um, there's just an accepted understanding about it. But I think that, like you said, it's become an all or nothing, um, which is of course nonsense because mm-hmm. that's firstly not the reality of it. Um, there's 360 million guns in the United States and private ownership. They'll never be taken. Um, just logistically, it's not fucking possible. Yeah. Um, and secondly, you know, when there are people are like, oh, well, you know, they'll, they'll send the government and the national guard to the FBI or the ATF or whatever. I'm like, yeah, see Afghanistan (laughs) has an, like these people live in caves and have an average IQ of like 55. Like, and we've been fighting an insurgency there for like 18 years. It's like, nobody is coming to get anything from you. Unfortunately, what you are looking at is you're looking at progressive, what people perceive as being infringements of their rights, just little pieces and slivers and death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. And I think the reality of it is, is that your moderates who I've argued are actually just a majority of normal people who feel some way about some issues and other ways about other issues would probably be like, yeah, no, I think it's rational that if you are a responsible tax paying law abiding person that you choose to own a firearm to protect yourself and your family, I can be on board with that. Mm hmm. Um, but that conversation isn't being had. Agreed. 
<laughs> that's 100%. not that's not what we're talking about. People are talking about, oh, it's my right to, you know, walk into Wendy's with an AR-15 and order my cheeseburger while I have a rifle and a chest care or a um Which a chest rig or so silly, you know. But it's like, oh, it's it's my right. It's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> but stop being dumb. It's like, but. But would you like? Be did doing you plan that? on <laughs> fighting the tyrannical government or a national threat in the Windies? Right. It's like we're not in Kosovo. You know, it's like yeah. is, you live in Fluvanna County. Like I, that that uh, that is the nail on the head for me. It it drives me crazy that the conversation shifted from what is practical government, right? Like, how do we govern practically to well, gosh darn it, this is my right and you can't take it. Sure. And and that's where the conversation totally melts down mm-hmm. because um, I don't give a crap if you have a gun. You know, I, I have family members who have guns. I, I, I've shot guns with family members and it's fun. And, I, and doing it, and I'm like, I see practical purpose in this. <laughs> that is fine. I don't care. But then we immediately are like, okay, well, if I'm allowed to go to the shooting range in Blacksburg, then that's also means that every, you know, anyone should be allowed to have a nuclear missile. And it's like, why are we here? Yeah. Like, this is such a weird logical jump from sure. and I love people, people should be allowed to have a f- sidearm to people should be allowed to have whatever the F they want. And I love like, when people are like, well, where's the line? It's like, the answer is fucking somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, exactly. Like, that's the thing is that, like, the slippery slope (laughs) argument drives me literally insane. Well, there's a reason it's a logical fallacy. Well, yeah, because it's like when we're we're sitting here being like, oh, it's And that's the thing. Like, there's not a lot of times where somebody will cite a logical fallacy as a good point. Like, nobody's like, well, that's a straw man. So, you know, I'll allow it. (laughs) It's like, well, that's a slippery slope and we'll allow it. And so the whole thing is that the idea of slippery slope arguments is that well if i'm here if i move anywhere close to a central position then i might as well be on the other side well that's the overton window i mean that's the that's the reality is the extremists in both parties and the tribalism has convinced the average person that there are no moderates Mm -hmm. that you're either far right or you're far left and there's no Mm -hmm. in between um like most people that i talk to who are like the more far right-ish of the people i know i'll be like hey as a mental health provider i'm actually able are not able to provide care to people who legitimately need it because there's such a cluster F of paperwork and bureaucracy and like, you know, essentially just like bull crap that goes into providing care to people yeah. that would not exist if we had a single payer system. Sure. If I the government so. negotiated rates and that everybody had to go through the same vetting process to provide services to a human being, that bullcrap wouldn't exist. But it takes me, you know, 30 days to get paneled with Cigna so I can take Cigna. It takes me six months to get paneled with Anthem, Blue Cross, and Blue Shield. Cigna will pay me 50. Anthem will pay me 75. And, well, Cigna thinks that this is an okay diagnosis, but Anthem doesn't. And Cigna says you can see me for six months, but this person says you can see me for three days. We ultimately end up in this place of, because we have so many options, all of them are just taking advantage. Sure. All of them are going, well, you know what? Like, I've cornered the market in central Virginia as this provider, so you're going to pay me thousands of dollars. I'm going to give you $20 in benefits a year. Yeah. And that's where we are. 
And I'm like, is that a good idea? And everyone that I've talked to who's on the right is like, well, no, that shouldn't happen. I'm like, well, that's the realistic outcome <laughs> like, I don't of ruin this no regulation. But that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like that is the reality of where we are without any form of regulation on the provision of mental health and medical insurance. My friends on the right fucking hate when I talk about uh, single-payer health care. I'm a huge, huge proponent of it, and I haven't been always. I used to be... Mm-hmm. Far on the right on a lot. I still am on, on some issues, not not nearly as many these days. But mm-hmm. um, it's funny how that starts to happen when you start to do your own research and, and think about things outside of a party standpoint. Yeah. Like the straw man argument of like well, single-payer health care provides lower levels of service and longer waits. Canada's doing great with their health care. Like, well, and that's in the a lot big of senses, thing. it's like you might wait a little bit longer but like that's because you're not other people are receiving medical care. That's why you're waiting. Yeah, exactly. Other people, because other people, people are, are getting, getting help. Are getting health care. <laughs> and so, and the, that's the it thing goes that back to the poor crazy. people. So we talk about single payer health care, and everyone's like, "Well, that's socialism." And then when you say socialism, you're like, "So look at China." I'm like, well, China's health care is wrought with bribery and people leaving the country for better health care other places mm-hmm. and blah blah blah. And that goes back to the point of. China is socialism with no accountability. Well, China is also essentially a dictatorship. Exactly. In a lot of ways. Well, that's, that is socialism with no accountability is right. dictatorship. Yeah. So, like I said, there are some differences. Yeah. And so, like, you look at North Korea, yeah. there's no accountability in their form of government. Mm-hmm. Now, well, they're to be like— fair, their president is God. Well, so. yeah, and that's cool. I wish ours I mean, was. But, he's also, know, incidentally, never taken a shit that's cool too that report came out he's never peter or taken a shit in his entire life and i believe it because north korea told me so right but the thing is you have countries that have socialist socialist programs like single-payer health care or you know i don't know social security you have those kinds of programs that are yeah exactly that are rooted in socialist ideology that work. They're fine. Like Canada is not hurting for healthcare. I have I've heard of people who will go, "Okay, I will pay more money to come to the US to get the specialist." Sure. And that and I will say that is a benefit of capitalism. Of capitalism. Right. I will say that. But there's the other side of that is that's also the benefit of our healthcare system that but the thing is when you say, "Oh, well they'll pay more to come to America for the better doctor." Right. That also should be a red flag for that's also not great because that means that the best doctors from India, the best doctors from the UK, the best doctors from Afghanistan, the best doctors from Canada go, well, I'll make more money in the US, so I'll go over there. Sure. So, like, our capitalism, like you said earlier, ends up being this is self serving. Yeah. We've pulled in the best talent, which is great, but then nobody has access to them but the ultra rich. Right. And then the people who could have had access if we hadn't drawn them to only be paid by the ultra rich lose access. When I told people again, you know, the rich are going to be okay. Yeah. Don't worry. They'll yeah. still have access to better health care than the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that's the thing is like, you can have single payer health care. Right. And also have people who take private pay. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. And that's the thing that I think so many people go off the rails on is like, well, if we have single payer, everybody has to take it. Right. Why? Everybody has the option. There is a difference. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing. Like, there's a lot of things that Joe Biden says where I'm like, "Mm, I'm not a huge fan. Um, 
but what he talks about with healthcare is actually like slightly reasonable. Or even like when you look at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they are talking about single payer healthcare right. outright. But no one has ever been like, and you have, as a provider, you have to only take single payer healthcare. Right. If somebody, it's the same thing with counseling now. If somebody comes to me and they're like, I'll pay you your self pay rate of 75 so that I don't have to go through insurance, I'll do that. I prefer it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, that's fine. But also, I want to make sure that every person in the county of Fluvanna has access to care. And as a society, that matters to all of us. Yeah, I think where, where it came around for me is I listened to Bernie Sanders on Joe Rogan. He mm-hmm. sat down a couple years back and did uh, like a one and a half hour segment. And he was talking about health care. And the way that he explains it, And I love getting people in. This is one of the reasons I love long-form interview is -hmm. because you get away from the sound bites. You get away from the, you know, catchphrases and this, that, and the other, and the stuff that's made for, like, the 12-second bit on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can actually ask people questions about it. And as he's sitting there talking, I'm like, fuck, this makes a lot of sense. (laughs) This isn't isn't good. Maybe I've caught the socialist. (laughs) But it's... It's crazy. Welcome, comrade. Right. So when I talk (laughs) to people about it, they're like, oh, well, you know, I don't want to pay for other people's insurance. I was like, okay, we're going to break this down. Usually this conversation has happened at a bar. And I'm like, all right, we're going to get into this. I was like, we're going to break down what you've just said. You don't want to pay for it. What you're talking in is medical treatment for people who can't afford it. It's like, number one, that's what you're talking about not wanting to pay for. Uh, So poor people, you're talking about not wanting to pay for poor people to be able to go to the hospital or the doctor or the dentist or the psychiatrist. They want to be able to, but they want to give the money to a nonprofit organization to care for the poor people or at least say that they could do it, but never did. Right. Um, Because apparently the church is going to do all that. If nobody else does, that's the next best. As a good Christian (laughs) go like church going person, the amount of healthcare bills covered by churches that i'm aware of it's very small right (laughs) like the church does a lot of good things and i I will never be like oh the church doesn't help but it's silly to think that all of those people who will argue that they don't want to pay extra taxes right because private charity should take care of it yeah will also give whatever they were going to give in extra taxes to their church well it doesn't scale either oh yeah i told you she will literally you just have to toss her um, but I was like, and number two, I was like, you're already paying for it through Medicare, through Social Security, through all of those things. Those things are, she will literally just get in your face if you don't toss her. Um, I'm okay with this. But I'll pay for it later. I was like, you know, the, the issue is that you're already paying for this system. You're already paying for these things that you're saying you don't want to pay for, which again is, is poor people receiving medical treatment. Mm-hmm. I was like, and... I was like, our current system just doesn't fucking work. I was like, it doesn't. I was like, if you're a pragmatic, practical person, you can take a look at something and be like, that's fucking broken. That doesn't work. <laughs> it's like it's like looking at your ceiling and seeing a huge pool of water in it getting ready to split. And you're like, I don't want to have to pay to fix that. This isn't my fucking room. <laughs> but, what you're, but what you're communicating is not that it doesn't work. Right. It's that this doesn't work for them. Right. It works fine for me. Sure. Or it were it doesn't work for me, but maybe it'll work for me tomorrow when I am no longer a poor person and then I can say, Well, it works 
It's just you didn't try hard enough. Right. And also an interesting dynamic that I've discovered, there is a, a direct correlation between people who think this way and people who have never had to utilize the healthcare system for anything significant. I That's actually a really good point. So I, my son, picture of health for one year, mm-hmm. never got sick, never had the sniffles, never had anything. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, why do I even need health insurance? Why do I pay taxes? Exactly. I was like, (laughs) I don't need anybody. This is great. Like, I waste all this money on health insurance. Me and my wife are being conned. Like, this is dumb. And then year two rolls around. He's healthy. He's Mm -hmm. great. He goes to daycare. He comes home. He has the sniffles. I'm like, oh, that sucks. He gets pneumonia. Mm. Oh, man, that sucks. He's fine. He goes back to daycare. He gets the sniffles. Gets pneumonia again. I'm like, oh, that sucks goes back it's uh, he has pneumonia like five times like, in a what year. the fuck is in this day <laughs> yeah exactly and i'm like what is going on like this small child i'm like if we have to like like we were saying about moving to arizona i'm like do we have to move to arizona like is the humidity the problem like what is going on here yeah. and the whole time that's happening i'm like thank god for health insurance like right. i'm so glad that i can afford health insurance sure all of this is happening well, it's good to that you, doctor. It's good you decide not to be poor. Well, yeah, early, early I'm really glad that I am a good enough person not to be poor. So I, I go to the doctor, and our doctor's like, "It's fine. He will get over this. Like, there's nothing that I'm seeing that would make me think that he has any kind of long-term respiratory issues. Like, he's recovering well enough from episode to episode that he's fine." And the whole time, I'm like freaking out. I'm like, "Is my son gonna die? Like, is he gonna be dealing with this the rest of his life? I don't know what's going on." But the whole time. We're getting these bills, and I keep looking at these EOBs, explanation of benefits for people who don't know. And I'm like, wow, I would have been paying thousands of dollars along the way. Sure. Like it's these medications, these doctor visits, it's thousands of dollars stacking up. He's fine. He's fine. Like, fine. He's sick. He's fine. He's sick. He's fine. He's sick. He's fine. We go back and forth like that for like seven months. We go to Florida. He'd been good for like two months. We go to Florida. We're going to Disney with our family. We're going to have this really fun trip. It's really great. We get there. The first night we get there, he throws up, which is like number one sign of pneumonia for little kids. Yeah. We're like, crap. So we like check him. He doesn't have a fever. He doesn't look like he's breathing heavy. And normally when kids have pneumonia, it's like, (gasps) so we're like, okay, well, he's fine. We go to Universal. We come back. He's kind of tired and sluggish, but he doesn't have a fever. We're like, okay, we're good. We go to Universal again. We come back. He, he doesn't look great. We call our doctor. Our doctor's like, you because of his history, take him. I'm like, okay. So then we go to the CVS Minute Clinic that they have in Florida. And I went with my family because they needed help corralling children. My wife takes him to the Minute Clinic. And they get there. And within like, she's in line for 45 minutes. He looks terrible. Mm-hmm. She finally gets in, and they they immediately look at him, and they're like, "He needs to go to a hospital." Yeah, and they like check his blood Man, oxygen. This is a CVS. Yeah, <laughs> so they check his blood oxygen level, and they're like, "He needs to go now. Like, mm-hmm. he needs he needs immediate medical care. Do we need to call an ambulance, or can you take him?" Mm-hmm. So my wife's freaking out. She calls me. We all leave Disney. Um, personally, I will put a plug in here. Disney is phenomenal. We went we were there for like a day it's fun but then we we were leaving and we told them like hey you know like afterwards we called them and we were like hey your son was in the hospital like we all had to leave and they gave us all tickets for everybody and gave him a ticket he didn't have to pay for a ticket at that time but like when he comes back he'll probably be old enough to 
have t- need a ticket so we'll give him one too wow so disney that was really cool thanks for doing that um once again that probably was like not even like a blip on the radar for how much money you make but we appreciate the thought so we go to the hospital he's in the hospital it's the most traumatic experience of my life like i don't know if anybody has experienced like significant need for medical care like going to the hospital in an emergency it's a crappy experience it doesn't matter why you're there yeah but it's traumatic in and of itself and so we're there our son is like getting these nebulizer treatments which normally he like immediately looks better afterwards he never looks better he's sluggish it's the most sad thing i've ever seen i'm sitting there no doctor will come in and say oh we're good we're on top of this just every person who comes in is like well that's not good Oh, that's not good. So I'm sitting there and me and my wife are like losing our minds. We're like, is he like, what is going on here? And they finally come in and they're like, Hey, so normally a nebulizer treatment is 10 minutes. They give him a one hour treatment and they're like, if he's not better after this, there's something wrong. So they give him a one hour treatment and the doctor comes in immediately after and they're like, Oh, there's something wrong. And so we're sitting there like, well, what, what do we do? And they're like, we have to treat him to the, we have to turf him to the children's hospital. It's right down the road. You know, we got to give him an IV. We'll get him there. So they come in and um, I don't know if you've ever seen an IV given to a small child. Mm. It is literally the saddest thing ever. Yeah. And so like our son didn't speak a lot at the time, but he definitely knew how to say mommy help. Yeah. And so we're sitting there holding him down and blood going places. They've got like six people in the room. Everybody's trying to hold him down. He's screaming. He's asking for help. It's literally the most traumatic experience I have ever had. And I've had some things. <laughs> and I, I'm i sitting there thinking the whole time, this is terrible. Like my son's going to die. They get him to the hospital. We get there. It's a learning hospital. We get new fresh doctor who's like, oh, did your kid have cancer? And we're like, oh, God, does our kid have cancer? And so they're doing all these tests. We're losing our minds. He, they put him on oxygen. It's terrible. They come in. Um, fun fact, it was COVID, but not COVID-19. It was regular COVID that everybody gets all the time. Um, so correct. not the hoax one. <laughs> not the fake Chinese one. No. <laughs> That's terrible. Don't ever say that, people. It's racist. Um, it, it's it's just a it's coronavirus is essentially a strand of the cold that not COVID nineteen once again, but typical coronavirus is something that a lot of kids get. Mm-hmm. They have cold like symptoms. Some of them it's a little bit more serious than others, but most of them require no medical attention at all. It's just liquids, bed rest, and you know Tylenol and stuff to manage fevers. So we go, and they're like, "Oh, he has COVID," but did you, has he had any issues before? And our doctor, we figured it out. Oh, he had RSV. RSV has like the six month period where like, after you get RSV, you're going to get sick like a thousand more times. And every time you get sick, you will have a serious complication. Like, it's just like pneumonia guaranteed every time you catch a cold. We didn't know that. Yeah. So we're having this like, like never ending traumatic experience, thinking our son's going to die, having no idea what's going on. All of this just being inherent to the process of receiving medical care, not in a bad system. The American system, once you're in it, it's phenomenal. Like they know what they're doing. They're well-trained doctors. My time in that children's hospital, like I, I will, anyone who, any, any person who asked me, I will be like, they provided amazing care. I I've never, I, it was phenomenal. We pack our child up after he's finally allowed to leave 
we're praying, we're thanking Jesus. We're like, this is, we were so scared. We get back to Virginia, we get our bill from the hospital and because we have insurance, it's fine. But we look at the bill and if we had not had insurance with insurance, we were paying $2,500 plus yeah. on top of all the stuff we had done before. So like his medical bills over the course of the year with insurance, three to $4,000. Yeah. If we, I, I went back and I looked at all of those bills over time. If we had not had insurance, his like two to three days in the hospital, all of his medications, all of that stuff, counting the time that we missed for work, staying home with him, all of that stuff. We're talking $35,000. Yeah. And that brings me back to the point of, well, thank God I'm a good enough person not to be poor. Right. That's the mentality that people have yeah. is, okay, well, if you were just, if you, if you just got the job, if you just did what you needed to do, you would be fine. Right. $35,000 at that time was how much money I made in a year. Yeah. If, and that's the thing is that our system is designed around this predatory insurance system where they're like, oh, well, insurance. And I, in the mental health field, people do this too. Insurance is only going to pay me 75. Well, I need to charge 125 so that maybe insurance will pay me more in the future. But then anyone who doesn't have insurance, they're paying 125. <laughs> and so medical, mental health doesn't matter. Cost becomes bloated because we're trying to get our fair share from the mental health or from the insurance field. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, for us to get our, you know, for us to get our nut from the insurance, the people who don't have insurance are in the hole $35,000 by the end of the year because their son caught RSV. Right. Because their kid got sick. Exactly. At the end of the day, back to what you said, this is a system that doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work for those who are ill with pneumonia or RSV or cancer. It does not work for people with anxiety. It does not work for anybody who doesn't have insurance. It works for the insurance companies. Oh, yeah. I mean, it works great. Going back to the they're point doing, that I made earlier. They're doing okay. They cannibalize their profits. Right. They, they eat it. They pay out their investors, they pay their CEOs, and then at the end of the day, they go, oh, poor us, it was a bad year. Yeah. We got to raise your premium. Yeah. Even though your utilization hasn't increased. Exactly. Right. It, we're in a system that takes advantage of the people who have the money to do it, that ignores the people who don't, and only benefits a small portion of people. Sure. And as a society... We've come to the place where we've decided that's okay. That's capitalism, baby. Right. Like, I'll just get to the 1% and then I'll be fine. Well, and people think one is tied to the other. So that's the mm -hmm. other sort of disingenuous part of it is that the argument has been made um, and the attachment for better or worse has been made that our system equals the best care, period. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the cost of doing business. Right. And it's just not true. Um, you know, there are good doctors in Canada. There are good doctors in England. There are good doctors in, in every country, every, I would say, developed country that exists. Mm -hmm. Undeveloped countries have um, phenomenal doctors, too. They just don't have resources to be phenomenal doctors. Right. So, I mean, I, I think medical care is probably the better way to put it. Yeah. Um, you know, but this idea that if you went to single payer, and again, the models are out there. Canada, the National Health System in Britain, um, and they're expensive, um, and there is a weight, particularly for non-emergent care, 
because of the utilization rate. That is a very real downside to single payer medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, the fact is the weight is because people are utilizing the service. Yeah. Um, but you know, people ask me, they're like, well, you know, cause that's like, well, how are you going to pay for it? You know, it, it costs X. Well, I was like, you know, I just don't really give a fuck what it costs. Like, it's just, it, if, if as a country we decide that the well-being and healthcare citizens is a priority, then we just fucking pay for it. We just do like we pay for an army because yep. we've decided that it's a, it's a national necessity that we have armed forces. Yep. Um, like we pay for military bases in other countries because we've decided it's of significant strategic importance. It benefits the poorest and the richest person in the U.S. to have right. a base in Djibouti. <laughs> sure. Or, you know, I mean, to say, okay, well, you know, we operate bases in in Germany still mm-hmm. because of, you know, I mean, that's obviously a fairly dated example. But, you know, there are strategic interests for the country that we have decided just cost what they cost. And mm-hmm. healthcare just needs to get into that field. Mm-hmm. It just needs to be one of the items where we're like, all right, you know, it's going to be really fucking expensive. It's going to take time. We're going to have to transition into it. But, yeah, we just need it. So, you know, it's like putting off yep. buying a tire. You know, you're just going to ride your spare around until there's a catastrophic failure. Where you, know, you, mm-hmm. you don't negotiate tire costs. You just buy a tire because you have to have them. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a significant number of people that die every year from preventable and treatable diseases. You know, diabetes comes to mind where people yep. are only in the first world country can you die of diabetes. <laughs> I mean, it's fucking crazy. Well, and that goes back to my point of prevention in healthcare. Right. When we're talking about how our insurance system works, everyone's like, well, if it's single payer healthcare, we're paying 30, like going back to my son's example, we're paying your $30,000. How is that fair? And the issue is that is a catastrophic, catastrophic event. Right. We, our son is the picture of health now. Sure. He eats healthy. He exercises. He's doing great. And that has nothing to do with like this idea. Like he, he's in no way a burden to the system at this point. It was a fluke. He was ill. There were complications to his illness that lasted you're longer fucking, than anyone could have your anticipated. Your kid got sick. Exactly. And so, but the thing is, he costs a lot of money, but he exists in very much... A small percentage of the population. $35,000 is nothing. Yeah. It is literally nothing. It's So it's nothing. And then when we're talking about it, the percentage of kids who have that level of complication after a common illness, very small. Yeah. And so, and when we look at it, when we talk about people who, if they are utilizing preventative care, their need for catastrophic care is going to go down. Is going to go down on a mass scale. Exactly. The need for triple bypass surgeries, which right. costs you know through the moon amounts of money. Insulin. The need for insulin. The need for you know even like when we're talking about like drug addict recovery programs, if we're able to catch people before they're sick or before they start using drugs or before they start using drugs or before you know whatever situation before the shit hits the fan, if we're able to diagnose, treat, and then provide wraparound services for those people, your money ends up being like three to one more valuable. Mm -hmm. For every dollar you put into prevention, you're saving three to five more dollars in, in care. And the other great lie of it is that you get to keep it. Right. It's like if I don't pay that 35 grand for your kid's hospital bills, I get to keep that. And mm-hmm. you don't. Nope. It just gets put in something else. You yeah. just actually fail to benefit from it. Yeah. 
that's really the only reality. Yeah. The, the number of people that I've spoken to who are like, I wouldn't pay for this person's thing. It's not fair that I have to pay for their thing because I have my own things. It's not fair that I have to stop at stop signs or that I have to drive 45 miles an hour instead of 75. I have EVOC training. I've been trained to drive emergency vehicles at high speed. I don't have to fucking drive 30 anywhere. I know because I used to get paid to drive faster than the speed limit. Mm-hmm. But I do because it's just part of being a person. like all of this kind of boils back to there there's the right thing there's a moral thing to do and then there's not Mm -hmm. and i'm not talking about religious morality Mm -hmm. i'm talking about recognizing the personhood of another person the right for them to be able to drive down the road and for you not to hit a puddle and slam into them at 70 miles an hour you could be the best driver in the world you can hit a leaf <laughs> like sure. you can you could run over a patch of wet leaves you can hit a puddle you could be rammed by someone behind you who's not doing what they're supposed to do there are certain laws that we have in place that just mitigate damage right we can't control for my son getting rsv and there being thirty thousand plus dollars in financial strain that we would have experienced without insurance there is no controlling that yeah short of us living in a bubble 35 grand is bankruptcy for a lot of people. Yeah. Most people, the people living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. 500, 250, $100 yeah. is enough to throw that whole thing out of whack. Yep. $35,000, a year's worth of money is an insane stress to put on somebody. Yeah. I think my dad's, my dad had throat cancer a couple of years back. And uh, I think that, you know, thankfully, again, he had insurance through his company and mm-hmm. it was great insurance. Um, I think we figured out his totals would have been close to like 150 grand. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, we because were lucky. He, because he got sick. He never smoked a day in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like he smoked for 30 years and then got throat cancer. And then you're like, hmm, you could have seen this one coming. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like just out of the blue. He's that guy who rolled fucking once, you know. And mm-hmm. um, thankfully, he had decided not to be poor, you know, <laughs> because, right, <laughs> you know, and he, uh, he ended up getting it out of, you know, it's taken care of, it's in remission, Um but, I mean, nobody fucking has that kind of money. Mm-hmm. Not a regular person. I'm not talking about, like, the rich well, people. Well, Anthem rich, has that rich, money. Right. Rich people do, you know, and, and insurance companies do. But, like, I don't know, man. Like I said, I've just gotten to the point where I just, you know, people will argue with me. And they're like, well, you know, that cost. And I'm like, yeah, I don't give a fuck what it costs. Like, we figure out. And I, I detest AOC for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. But, as she points out so eloquently... You guys managed to find money to pay for wars anytime you feel like it. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, that's there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's like the guy who says, Oh man, I can't come out because I'm broke, or you know, I can't do this because I'm broke, or I can't make my car payment this month, but he's out there buying cigarettes and lottery tickets and shit. You know, it's like well, you've got money for the I things see. you want. Yeah, I was gonna say that's that's a matter of priority and accountability, right. not a matter of resource. Um but no, at this point, I'm just like, yeah, fuck it. It costs what it costs. Like, we just need to do it. There's no reason that a person living in the largest, most powerful country that has ever existed in the history of humanity can't walk into a fucking doctor's office, receive quality treatment, and not have to pay anything for it. Or pay the same that anybody else would pay. Because that's essentially what we're talking about with taxes. Right. Is they are paying, and that's the thing that a lot of people on both sides I get mad about. 
there are people on the left who don't recognize that they are paying. You are sure. paying. You will get increased taxes. Please don't throw a hissy fit. There are people on the right who will be like, oh, well, uh, you know, nothing's free. And it's like, it's not free. <laughs> I, right. I'm willing to pay for it. There, sure. the, I would I would guess that there is a large portion. I, I'm not going to posit whether or not it's a majority, but there is a large portion. And I would guess a majority if we're talking about, hey, if you paid this much per year for your health care, would you do it? Not to like if you kept out whether or not it's going to the government or Cigna or whoever. Yeah. If you just said, hey, if you only had to pay X amount of dollars per year for your health insurance, would you do it? Mm -hmm. I would guess a lot of people would be like, oh, well, hell yeah. Like well, that, that actually sounds pretty good to me. But that's the that's the benefit of single payer health care is with single payer health care. There's only one avenue for me as a provider to make money. Right. If I'm not doing private pay, I have to go through the government. They are able you get more cost because the government is receiving all of those funds, but at the same time, they have the power to negotiate the cost of treatment. Sure. So a fucking EpiPen doesn't cost eight grand. Exactly. Because the government will be like, well, bullshit. I'm not going to pay eight grand for an EpiPen. Yeah. And I'm, I'm one of... EpiPens <laughs> in all of the other places? Exactly. So it's like, <laughs> I'm, one of, I'm one of two sources of income for you, and I right. represent about 80 to 90% of your sources of income. I'm going to tell you how much an EpiPen costs. Mm -hmm. And the thing is... That would be terrible if EpiPens actually cost eight thousand yeah. dollars. Then nobody's there's creating. No, there's nothing in there that costs eight grand. Exactly. So like they're made of plastic. We we're <laughs> we're not saying, oh, we're going to destroy all ingenuity by having single payer healthcare, because you're still going to make a buck being the guy who invents the EpiPen. Sure. You're just not going to make so much money that you have to hire a dragon to sit on your pile of gold. Sure. You will live a comfortable, far above the average man's existence with the amount of money you make from a like life-saving therapy, like therapy. But you're not going to be Jeff Bezos, and that's okay. No, but I've told people too. I, I love telling them, like you know, the rich are going to be okay. Don't worry, they'll be all right. It's always funny to to hear somebody who makes thirty grand a year argue for passionately for the benefits of people who wouldn't fucking spit on them. Yep. <laughs> it's like, you know. Like, and, the, and then the thing that makes me so happy is they're the ones that call the other people sheep. Like it's their, it's like, like it's their you peer are group. literally, yeah, yeah. it's like <laughs> you are Jeff Bezos's sheep. Mm -hmm. The one, the person calling the other one the sheep is the one who literally is the source of income, like the source of exorbitant income yeah. for the person that you're trying to defend. Now, I get that there are sheep. There are people who are like, I'm I thought you were talking about like actual sheep. I was like, oh no, that's, there are some over there. <laughs> well, there are those sheep too, but I, I get that there are people who are like, I'm just going to line up behind this belief, this ideology, because this is the case. And everybody does that mm -hmm. because that's the whole concept behind groupthink. And it, no, that's the whole concept behind like, um, oh, oh shoot. I can't remember what it's called. I don't know. Whatever the bias is. Tribalism. Um, yeah, tribalism or confirmation bias. There you go. Sure. That's the whole concept behind confirmation bias. I already believe this. AOC told me it's true. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, um, Donald Trump told me this was true. So, okay, well, I already believed it, so it's true. That's right. the whole concept behind that. Sure. People are sheep sometimes. By You can call it evolutionary design. You can call it, you know, intelligent design. Call it whatever you want. We want to follow something. Sure. We want to we, we want to believe that there's a sense of order. 
there's a right and there's a wrong. And so we line up behind what we believe to be that thing. That doesn't mean that you're unintelligent. It doesn't mean that you are bad. It, it, it is not, there's not a value judgment to be made there. But what we need to do is be able to say, I understand that this is what you believe. I understand that this person is espousing your beliefs and you get behind that. Can we look for areas of commonality? Can we look for areas where, you know what, I, I concede that I might be wrong here if you can concede that you might be wrong here? There's a discussion that can be had there. But until we're able to recognize that, yes, we might call that person out for being a sheep, but also we kind of like to be sheepish in this area as sure. well, we're not. We're never going to make any kind of progress. No, it's things. like one of my friends invited me to the uh, the Million Trump Supporter March today in D.C., you so you want to come with us? I was like, no, it sounds fucking stupid. So I'm going to fucking do that. Like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, well, you know, he's like, well, we're going to go up there and we're going to, you know, demonstrate or protest or whatever. I was like, oh, cool. We'll have fun. You know, so we up, that's your right. I was like, number one, I have a podcast scheduled for tomorrow. I was like, number two, I just think it's, I think it's stupid. Like, so you put that, those in whatever order you want. But. Right. You know, was, and you know, great, go do it. You know, but I think it's stupid for the same reason that I think that like some of the mass demonstrations that people on the left do were stupid. You know, like the people report, you know, they're passionate about things like the people who go and they picket abortion clinics like here in Charlottesville, there's Planned Parenthood on Hydraulic Road. Mm -hmm. And every Sunday, like clockwork, there is a group of like five or six generally elderly people out there with their signs saying, you know, abortion is murder and all of this. It's like, okay, cool. Good for you. Like mm -hmm. you're out there doing your thing. Um, you probably, if your actual goal was to raise awareness and make changes in line with that belief, there are more useful applications of your time. I agree with that a hundred percent, but do what you want to do. Yep. And, and getting people to, kind of take a step back and and it's it's counterintuitive to people because we're all the smartest people we've ever met i certainly am um right i mean i i think you're wrong because obviously you know i am the smartest person <laughs> so we can't those things can't be true but we can agree that one of us is wrong i disagree but, <laughs> but <laughs> i disagree on that agreement no it's um it's like do you ever think that like ah, fuck there was a um there was a bit, I can't remember where it was from. It was really funny. It was a short video. And um, it's, this, it's a British guy. One of the guys from um, Shaun of the Dead. Mm -hmm. Not the main character, but his friend. And he's sitting there, and they're, they're Nazis. So they're sitting in their, like, in their trench, and they have like their fire and everything. He's like, he's like, hey, man. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, because, you know, I've been thinking. He goes, you know, are we the baddies? <laughs> he goes, I was waiting. He's of course not. You know, we're doing this. He goes, right. He goes, but you know, he's like, we've got skulls everywhere. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, but it's like, no, getting people to step back and be like, just set your ego aside for a second and just take a step back and be like, is there a possibility that I am not actually correct about this particular issue, or that just maybe it is more complicated than I initially realized? Yeah. Or it is more complicated than I have the depth of knowledge to speak on. Sure. Because I, I will say, like, there, there are that's certain no issues. Fun. <laughs> that's no fun at all. I like to speak on all types of things I don't understand. But at the end of the day, I, 
I feel more comfortable talking about healthcare as a mental health provider. Sure. I, I have personal experience. I've read into it a little bit more. I have more of a vested interest. Truthfully, you probably know more about the healthcare system than most of Congress. If we're being honest, probably like a real world, not as much as, knowledge. you know, the, the lobbyists who are speaking to them, but definitely as the people providing, you know, the actual votes for law. But the thing is, I, I will say I have opinions about firearms. We talked about that earlier. I, I have things that I think to be true. But if anyone ever were to be like, oh, actually, there's this research. Have you read it? Mm -hmm. No, if I haven't read it, I'm going to read it or I'm going to be right. like, you know what? I, you've presented me with so much information that I cannot digest it and provide a like coherent, logical response. I'm a bow out. Yeah. <laughs> like you obviously care about this more than I do. I am ready to admit that I do not have the experience or the education or the time to dig into this the way that you have. Or you just don't care enough. Or Exactly. Or I don't care enough. I, I the, There's um, a finite level of things that you can understand at an expert level. I think. Yeah. Um, the what is the show on um, Netflix? The one that was um, Big Bang Theory. No, God, this show sucks. The Mandalorian. Um, <laughs> I don't Plus. watch. I don't watch no, it's, Netflix. It's um. <laughs> it it was a new show. I I can't remember. Um, Are you talking about the the child porn one? Cuties? No. What? Oh, sorry. <laughs> So it, I can't remember. It was a current event. You got to work with me, man. What is it I about? I, I'm, I'm going to go to the bathroom in about 30 seconds and I'll tell you what it was when I look it up on Google while I'm peeing. But basically at, at the end of whichever season it was, the guy was like, here's the thing. I bombard you with information. I come at you with the hot topic of the week. I come at you with Justin Trudeau and I come at you with the Amazon burning down and I come at you about police reform and you know, political finance. And he brings all of this information and it's all important. But he's like, at the end of the day, pick a couple. Yeah. Pick a couple that you're knowledgeable about, knowledgeable about. Pick, enough, pick a couple that you care about and that you can devote the energy to because you can't care about everything. No. You, you can't care equally about the rainforest burning down as you do protecting animals, as you do protecting voter registration, as you do having affordable, you know, manufacturing of clothing. All of these are legitimate issues. They're important right. issues. And you can't care about all of them and provide enough attention to them to be anything helpful to that movement or to yeah. that to that issue. So pick a couple that you care about and and put yourself in those. Care about them, feel what you need to feel about them. And if someone's like, hey, I, I need to spend a minute talking to you about nuclear energy and you don't have the mental bandwidth to care, then you need to be able to say, I don't care. Like I, I yeah. want I it may be important. I'm not downplaying the importance of this thing or the impact it has on anyone's life. Yeah. But I I do not have the mental bandwidth to put myself behind another thing. Yeah. And on that note, I'm going to go pee. So no. we've got like an hour. T talk to me about the fucking election, man. <laughs> let's just, let's, we're good and, good and toasted. Let's yeah. just get into it. Um, Firstly, do you think it's over? It feels like a fucking horror movie where like the <laughs> The killer's dead? So here's the thing. <laughs> I am a strong believer in the idea that the idea of elections being secure 
is very important. Sure. Regardless of the actual security of the elections. <laughs> now, that being said, if there is legitimate con- security concerns, yes, please, God, address them. Sure. If President Trump had any form of legitimate evidence that there had been tampering or votes that were, you know, thrown in by some random dude who, you know, asked for 20,000 people's dead mom's voter registration and then ballots eventually. Okay. Like, please address that. I think if he had it, we'd have it. Exactly. So Uh, he's not able to sit on shit like that. Exactly. And so what we're really looking at here is I think the thing that has plagued his entire presidency, which is this idea of he has a base that is rooted in not necessarily being super conservative, but being anti-liberal, not socialist. Sure. It's, he plays tribalism, partisanism, whatever, to the fullest extent that it can be played. And so what he's really doing right now is that every time he posts that video of the poll worker getting you know, taking the ballots on November 4th after the ballot boxes were closed at 8 p.m. on November 3rd and they just happened to be collecting at the time they should have been collecting Mm -hmm. and a guy with a phone just happened to be standing there. Every time he posts a video like that, he doesn't, I in no way think he's being like, see, this is true. Right. He's stoking a base of supporters who want it to be true. Sure, it's confirmation bias back yep exactly back to where we were he's he's playing on like the most base instincts that people have which is that like there's an in group and an out group Mm -hmm. and the out group is trying to hurt me and the in group knows what i want not even that the out group wants to fundamentally destroy my way of life yeah yeah and believes the literal opposite of every single thing i hold dear Mm -hmm. all of my core values and an extension of that is the opposite of my beliefs and core values are wrong and evil exactly because there is a distinction exactly because if something is evil and i talk about this in the tribalism video that i made if something is evil you can you have a moral obligation to stand up against right you can provoke men to crusade against it in the name of good Mm -hmm. because that's a whole different plane of operating Mm-hmm. Like like Nazis, I hate when people compare shit to Nazis. I'm like Nazis were actually fucking evil. Mm-hmm. They were killing millions of people in actual death camps. Mm-hmm. Like President Trump is many things. A Nazi, he is not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like so you shouldn't throw and, terms around like that. <laughs> and that's the thing. So you can say <laughs> he's a Nazi, and I'm like, please stop. Right. But you can say he's intentionally hurting people, and I will say. Okay, like, please, but support it. So right. when people are like, oh, mass hysterectomies in camps yeah. or like, you know, in detention centers, there's evidence that that occurred. Sure. That is an example of he hurt people to advance an agenda. Is that evil? Yes, I would argue that it is. Sure. Has other, have Democratic presidents done evil things? Yes, 100%. And that, that's really what we're, I think the attention needs to be is on addressing legitimate evil. Right. Addressing legitimate immorality. Not, I don't agree with what you're doing. Right. 
And so, and it, it becomes a really difficult issue, but there are things that the Republican platform has. And I, I will say I did not vote Republican this time around. I have in the past. I voted in 2016, not for Trump, but for, do you remember who the third party guy was? I assume you voted for him too. He was the guy who worked for the CIA or um, whatever out of Utah. I don't even remember. I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember his name. He was a conservative. The that sad didn't, thing is that it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't matter. But the thing he was he was running as a conservative who didn't have the backing of the GOP. Well, and more importantly, the donors. There you go. So technically, a third party, but in all rights, would have been exactly what the conservative party before Trump would have been like. Okay, sure. very much in line with what you would see with McCain or Romney. Right. I voted for him. And I have no qualms in saying that. I have people on the left I'd vote for. Tulsi Gabbard I'd vote for in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. Tulsi's great, which is the reason she'll never be president. So, and that's the thing. There's people <laughs> on the right I would vote for. So, um, uh, what's her name from Maine? Collins. She, so, she's like the most moderate. Like, when you look at all of the, like, the... Um, the ones that are, like, trying to rate people's partisanshipness. Sure. She always lands in the middle. But mm-hmm. she always runs as a Republican. And I'm like, yeah, I'd vote for her. Yeah. Heck yeah, I'd vote for her. Or like Mitt Romney is actually a really good example. He he is a conservative yeah. who leans left on some issues, but also, and the thing that I legitimately enjoy about him and what gets him absolutely lambasted by a lot of Republicans is he calls out other Republicans for being crappy. Yeah. It's the same thing that happened with McCain. McCain calls out Republicans for being crappy people yeah and then he's a rhino so it's like yeah i think the the problem is the very nature of the ideological purity test is that nobody passes them Mm -hmm. they are not passable Mm -hmm. Uh, they're just exclusively designed to enhance tribalism and to push people towards their party's extremes but that's the thing trump passed it with the highest score ever you should see it that's because it's the highest score it's because he just says things and that that's the point. He doesn't even mean in, in half of them, I'd say. He just mm-hmm. fucking says whatever he thinks is going to make he the... Is, he's he, the kid who promised to put Kool-Aid in the school fountains yeah. if you elected him. He he is the definition of a celebrity president. Sure. He, you ever see Idiocracy? That, that's fucking who he is. Yeah. He's is Camacho. We're, we're living it. And so, like... <laughs> Tucking I, off an M249 I, in the State of the Union address. I, I hate it that people are like Trump's Trump is the Republican Party. And I, I believe it. I, I honestly he, believe it. I don't but think like, that he is. He he is in that he is the face of the party. And if you if you don't vote for the face, he is not what the party represents. Right. But he is the party right now. And that's the the whole issue with the two party system. Right. Joe Biden is the Democratic Party right now. There are a lot of Democrats who do not like Joe Biden. Sure. But he is the face, and if you don't vote for the face of the party, then you might as well be on the other side. It's it's the, the same thing you hear for people who vote third party. Anyone who voted third party in 2016 voted for Trump. Or Clinton, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. Exactly. But it, it essentially, the argument always goes against, it always goes in favor of you voted for whoever won. Right. So if you voted third party in 2016, you voted for Trump. If you voted third party in 2020, you voted for Biden. And the thing is, in 2016, if you voted third party, then everyone on the right was like, good job. Thank you for doing that. If you voted third party in 2020, everybody on the left is like, thanks for doing that. And so, like, 
And honestly, that should be a sign that you're doing something right. <laughs> that that well, libertarians, in some senses, and I say libertarians because they're one of the most uniformly third party believed. But libertarians, green too. My big issue with the third parties is that they are just as much a fantasy party as like the far left socialist communist people. You know, they just don't mm -hmm. see it. It's like the shit you're talking about is not feasible. Like mm -hmm. the idea that the government is going to descale. To the point where it only operates foreign wars and interstate commerce my, issues. <laughs> like, that's not going to fucking happen. Man. My favorite thing that was <laughs> ever happened was when um, Johnson was running in 2016. And he was being asked by, I can't remember who was interviewing him, but they were like, well, you know, uh, what cabinet positions would you get rid of? All of them. And he was like, he started listing them and he couldn't remember them. Right. He was just like, I don't, I don't even know what cabinet positions there are. And in some senses, I think that sums up the whole third party thing. Sure, they're not legitimate players. They they don't know they don't know how the system works. They're running on the they're running a third party fairy in tale. a two party system. Yeah, they're they're running the. Wouldn't it be great if we had something other than the other three? And there are enough people who are like, yeah, that would be nice, right? And and, and you then you pull realize that they're other side, that they're crazy. And then you're like, oh. yeah, well, they're not running on an actual platform. <laughs> right. You know, as much as people love JoJo, she wasn't running on a platform. She was running right. on being a libertarian. And anybody who's like a disillusioned Republican or a disillusioned moderate Democrat is a libertarian by virtue of the fact that they're not the other ones. Right. And so and that's what you end up with. Right. Our, our system of government doesn't in any way allow room for a middle of the road party. And it, it likes that. Sure. <laughs> like, like I said, it's by design. It's a feature. Yeah. It's not a bug. Like a Democrat, Democrats and Republicans both plan on the middle of the road people either not voting because they're not very inspired. Sure. Or not or voting for libertarian or green parties because they're voting on principle or on, you know, I'm not these guys. And they, they factor that into the fact that that's what they need to win. Mm -hmm. And anyone who says otherwise, I feel like is a, a silly willy. You know, I'm not going to say anything mean about them, but I feel like I'm not. And I'm not saying don't vote third party. I If you align with the principles of a third party person, please vote third party. Vote. I tell everybody, vote based on your conscience. If you do. But the problem is nobody does. The libertarians are, and I have friends who are libertarians, mm -hmm. and it's fascinating to listen to while they're drinking i would never put them in charge of anything oh yeah <laughs> like, you know it's it sounds great you know it's like but you're <laughs> it's a fairy tale you're like 300 years late to this party yeah because the <laughs> thing is you look at the far 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 left like purely socialist whatever right you look at far 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 right which is fascism right and then you look at pure nothingness which is libertarianism right they're not feasible because nope. all three of those positions require a person who is infallible. Libertarianism yeah. requires all people to be good people. I, I have this conversation with one of my closer family members all the time. I love the idea of libertarianism. Sure. 
But I think not, that if all people government though exactly like I if all people were like me and I know this is a dangerous place to go because it's like well, I'm amazing but like if all people had a I feel like if they had a the same and I'm not even saying good or bad the same moral compass sure if they all ha- held the same beliefs recognized the same things as important libertarianism would be great but if your population is not a monolith yeah it is a freaking dumpster fire right. and no, very a, quickly becomes feudalism <laughs> it's a great system of government for like a greek city state circa yeah. like a thousand bc <laughs> oh, well it, it's even great when you look at like like sweden maybe or well, japan when you look at like societies within a society right basically a homogenous population that shares a set of common goals yeah so yogaville in buckingham are you familiar Mm -mm. it is a hippie commune um they sell soaps and cheeses and random things i don't know but the thing is all of the exports of a of a commune (laughs) yeah you know think you know stuff hippies do as one does (laughs) yeah so i don't know what they do yoga i guess is in the name but the thing is libertarianism works great sure if every single person collects in an environment because they have mutual goals and mutual beliefs and it only maintains its functionality if the people who don't believe what that community believes either remove themselves or are forcibly removed right because otherwise history shows us they just kill them and conquer them and take them over and then they install their own government exactly right and so it doesn't doesn't scale well yeah so like libertarianism i tell people in a perfect world yes that's the way it needs to be everybody has their little plot of land right mind your own business yeah you work your land you trade with your neighbors you never infringe on their rights they never infringe on yours everybody's happy nobody's in charge of single-payer health care or whatever because you know if you need help you go to your neighbor who happens to be a doctor and they you know give you a cast and everybody hugs and everybody's great and that's good and you everybody has their guns but nobody uses their guns and if they did need to use their guns it's so rare right and so it's just like okay like yeah i'd like that i don't think there's a single person who listens to a libertarian speak and goes, well, I don't want to live in that world. Yeah. But it's never going to happen. Right. And any person who's a staunch libertarian that you talk to now, the only way that you get to libertarianism is either you buy a time machine, like you said. Yeah. Or you literally need to burn it all down. Right. Like, you you have to, like, be like, hey, guys. Right. You have to, you have just... to basically systemically kill every single person that doesn't consent to living in your mm-hmm. in your little world. Yeah. And so if the U.S. were ever to become a libertarian, like, super country, we would have to rid any person who has a dissenting opinion. We would have to destroy every system of local, state, and federal government. That's the And we would have to phase. descend in, like, yeah, exactly. And we would have <laughs> to descend into literal total anarchy. Right. And then out of the primordial ooze that is what is America at that point— China ascends, <laughs> ascends libertarianism, and the thing is closely followed by China. <laughs> sure, or any other person who's like, oh, well, America's big and has things that we want, right? So, like, so like, 
it's just not realistic. I don't, I don't care what anyone says. I, you know, maybe heaven will be, we'll get to heaven and God will be like, why didn't you vote for Jojo? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, (laughs) I sent you a Jojo and you didn't take hold. I don't know. But like at the end of the day, it's not practical in any form to even say, Hey, this is what we should be doing. It's, there's a gray area in here between what the left and the right has to say, you know, things like single payer healthcare, I think are really great ideas. I'm fine with the second amendment, as long as we are like prioritizing other people's right to life, liberty, and happiness over your right to carry a, you know, AR 15 around you and a handful of pocket grenades into the Wendy's. Sure. There's a balance to be had there. There's a gray area in here that supports taking care of all people regardless of whether or not you're wealthy white person male and you know being china <laughs> like sure. being in a communist dictatorship yeah. there's somewhere in here that i'd like to think we can exist well and in here is actually the 80 percent Right. It's not like, and I, I love when people are like, oh, well, you know, the moderates are, you know, they account for it. It's like, no, 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 no. So if you go to the technical definition of a moderate, it is people who have no strong preference to one side or the other, right? They mm-hmm. feel liberally about some ideas, conservative about other ideas. Um, that's most people. Mm-hmm. The moderates are actually probably 80% of the country. The problem is that the media, the propaganda, the never-ending news cycle has convinced people that the majority of people are actually on one side or the other. And so mm-hmm. then people, getting back to tribalism, getting back to our desire to um, groupthink and to associate with others, you know, we feel like we have to pick a side. Mm-hmm. And then your personal Overton window goes with you. Mm-hmm. And you're like, all right, well, I want to be with the right. And they're like, all right, but, you know, you can't have single-payer health care if you come in here. If we let you in the clubhouse, you got you to gotta leave that shit at the door. And you're like... Fuck, okay, yeah, no, single-payer healthcare is evil. <laughs> I'll give that up if it means that we save all the babies. Right, you know, and so they jump in, and like, all right, I'm, you know, I'm a blood member now. <laughs> I believe what the party believes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same thing on the left, you know, yep. and it's... Um, it's like, if you want to save the planet, then you need to murder some babies. It's right. Like, oh, man. <laughs> like, okay. No, it's, uh, it's crazy, man. I don't know. I think that I've been looking at it a lot. On, on particularly Twitter when I'm not banned. I'm intermittently allowed to use Twitter. So once every three weeks. Right. And so I think that, number one, if Trump had evidence of mass voter fraud, we would have it mm-hmm. because he's not the kind of person to sit on that sort of thing. Um, I don't think he can. I don't literally think he's incapable of keeping things a secret. Um, he's as capable of keeping that secret as my son is right. waiting for Christmas to climb up to the top of our closet and grab his nerf gun right so i also think that it's true that there is and i was talking to a a person about this you know it's true that there is there is some level of voting fraud i think in every election there are the people who are dead that manage to vote every year there are people who on an individual basis like poll workers who will sometimes steal ballots or change ballots or whatever but to talk about voting fraud on a mass scale. On a mass scale, which is what would have to be happening right now for it to alter the outcome of the election. Because Biden, I think, in the in the state that he is least ahead, I think it's like 35,000 votes. That's Georgia, right? 
It's either Georgia or, or Georgia, Wisconsin. I, I think can't Georgia's remember. the only one that's going to a hand recount. So it would have to be, I think, like a 30,000 vote swing. And, you, and the level of fraud that you would have to perpetuate to change 30,000 votes is massive. Because mm-hmm. that's the thing is like, if we're talking about looking into voter fraud, Bush versus Gore, 100%. Right. Yes, we need to look at that. Because <laughs> sure. like, we're talking about a handful of votes. Right. When we're talking about. 30,000, 40,000. That's a fucking city. 15,000 even. That's it, a yes, city. Yes, that's enough to trigger a of hand recount. Of missing votes yeah. or changed votes. Yeah. That's like somebody fraudulizing. Is that the word? Fraudulizing? Uh, I'll allow it. Fraudulizing. <laughs> or making a fraudulent vote count to the portion of the actual population of a small city. It's like Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. If someone, it would take an insanely large concerted effort and if people like the FBI can find like the two guys in, you know, North Dakota who or like the people who are going to kidnap the right. governor of Michigan. Right. It's like if they can find those people. Right. I think they'll find the 30,000 right. like fraudulent votes that get thrown in. Like, and you have to deep state or not. Right. It's like <laughs> somebody's going to find that. It's like a conspiracy. You know, you have to you have to then suspend your disbelief to a level that indicates fraud on a like biblical scale mm-hmm. i mean every part of the system will have to be just irreversibly corrupt yeah and if you get to that point we're done as a country mm-hmm. people just see when you as a country when you cease to have faith in your elections you're no longer a first world country mm-hmm. you're not i agree i mean that's that's the threshold where people no longer have faith in the election and they do nothing we have a fair election um, that's it. We're done. It's like I was Pack saying when we started this section, the belief that you have fair elections right. is in a lot of senses just as important as making sure that your elections are fair. Because if sure. you don't have an electorate yeah. that believes the system is fair, then you immediately end up in a position where you either have disengagement or you have people who are unwilling to call out fraud when it needs to be called out. Or you have people that are like, fuck it, it's time to flip the table. Because, you know, we play by the rules and we get fucked. That's how people feel about it. I think people can accept the outcome of an election that they believe is fair. Mm -hmm. They may not like it. They may wallow in it for a couple weeks or four years. (laughs) But but it it is ultimately, I mean, that's what keeps the wheels on. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think that when, when we kind of talk about this election, do, do I think it's over? Yes, I ultimately think it's over because I I think that as much damage as this election has done to the confidence of certain voters, I think that it's going to take a couple more like this to really tip the scale into Americans, big picture, are losing faith in the system. I 100% believe, yes, I think this was harmful. to to democracy in america i think it's harmful to democracy across the world honestly because regardless of what position you take as far as us being you know the police of the world or how much we should actually like physically (laughs) have our hands on other people's things people do look to the united states as a model for democracy for fair elections for these kinds of things and every year that we succumb to this level of partisan what i will call bullshittery yeah 
we lose respect. And, and I don't say that from the position of like, oh, we need their respect to be a credible country. But we do need respect to shape democracies around the world. There, there are countries that are just teetering on the brink between accountability and no accountability. And I, I don't want to say, you know, democracy and socialism or whatever other people would frame that of because I think that's a bullshit reframe. I, it's between our government is accountable to us and it's not. Right. And we have to model accountability to the world. At, at the end of the day, that is that is what America really stands for, is that the government is accountable to the people. It doesn't matter if we are socialist or libertarian or whatever the F we end up being America's real power and purpose. I think on the global stage is modeling governmental accountability to the people, what the people decide the government will do. And we have very much lost our way in that. You can say it's partisanship. You can say that it's campaign finance reform, gerrymandering, whatever, you can point your finger wherever you want at the end of the day our government is not accountable to the people no a lot of the time and if we cannot grab the reins on that then we're done and i had a conversation with one of my family members the other day and she was shocked that i would even say this but i very strongly believe it and i will not back down from this position from nobody like anybody who talks to me about it Anybody who thinks that the United States is going to last until Lord Jesus comes home is so very, very, very misguided. There are governments that last for hundreds of years. There are systems that last for thousands of years. There is no form of government that has lasted until the end of time. You look at country, even like Egypt, like ancient Egypt, there are phases. There's, you know, they kingdoms or whatever they didn't last forever they they toppled there was like a dark age and then somebody came up and somebody came up and somebody came up and we learn about it in school and we talk about it and we use it as our model for government and we do all this stuff yeah but that was a long time ago everything's good now yeah exactly that's what we do it's like (laughs) you know we talk about greece and we're like well greece was like such a great democracy it's like well the Greece that we talk about as being the direct democracy that we idolize in so many ways, they don't exist. They're right. gone. We're talk- we weren't talking about Greece. We were talking about Athens. Right. And Athens is gone. I mean, Athens is a city, but it's not a city-state. It's not its own form of government independent. Right. We, you know, we talk about, you know, the Mayflower Compact. Nobody looks at that crap anymore. Nobody no. uses that as a guidance for government. We talk Magna Carta. Yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, we talk about Alexander the Great and, you know, yeah. Hellenistic Judaism and blah, 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 like all of these like periods of time that lasted sometimes hundreds of years. And they end. They yeah. always end. And they almost always end the same way. Yeah. We become so obsessed with internal threat that we lose focus on external threat. Right. And at the end of the day, those things end. Now the stakes get higher and higher and higher and higher as time progresses because our capacity to harm other human beings becomes higher, 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 and higher. Right. 
And so like, you know, when Helen or you know, when the Hellenistic period ended and the Greek nobody got new you know, empire. Yeah, exactly. That collapsed. <laughs> and then like that system of government collapsed and then everybody was like, "Well, where did the Greeks go?" Like somebody stopped telling us what to do. Mm-hmm. But then they just started telling themselves what to do and they moved on. But like when the United States collapses or when, you know, when like when communism and the USSR collapsed, everybody's sitting there like it only takes one person to like push the big red button for sure. the world to end. Like it takes one person throwing a hissy fit in the highest position in the land, you know, in the USSR to be like, Ooh, I'm going to push the button. And you know, if I can't no. win, nobody wins. And that's exactly where we are right now. And so we sit here and we keep peddling this lie that America is yeah. so much more advanced, so much more civilized, so much more democratic, so much more whatever than anywhere else in the world. But everyone's sitting watching American elections right now doing the exact same thing, going, is this person's going to throw such a hissy fit that they just, like you said, flip the table? Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, what we're sort of, from a historical standpoint, we're witnessing is sort of the American government has sort of super accelerated through the stages of, of basically the Roman Empire. Um, and we're on the back end of the mm-hmm. bell curve right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's unfortunately, you know, we, we have witnessed, I would say really just in the last, I would say objectively historically, like the last 50 years, um, government corruption has really just, up. has just grown exponentially. It's metastasized mm-hmm. and I don't know if there's any way to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really, I think the the likely scenarios that are more or less peaceful um, is some form of balkanization. Um, I think that the two party system will be the death of the U.S. Mm-hmm. long term. Yeah, and and this is my like, <clears throat> I'm being a therapist. I guess I'm putting on my therapist hat right now. Does your therapist hat usually come on after like six glasses of whiskey? Uh, honestly, I have no control over when my therapist hat comes on because it's just who I am, I guess. But here's the thing. I have to believe that anyone, anything, any entity is able to change if the will is there. I have to believe it. So I think the participation of 40% of our eligible electorate pretty much says it's not. And that's the thing. So (laughs) we can't even get that vote. In arguably the most polarizing election that we've ever had. We and still that, have, what, 50% turnout, if not a little bit less? Yeah. And so, but that's the thing that I, it it sucks because, yes, this election mattered. Last election mattered. Every election we've ever had matters. I, I have to believe that there's the capacity for change. Yeah, I think and, that... And our government, our country is predicated on the belief that we are capable of change, of growth, of providing opportunity. And and I, I'll hold to it today, just as much as the day that I die, that we are able to change. And we are going down a wrong course. Like I was saying, I think it was before we started the podcast. I'm a huge believer in and versus, but yeah, we are capable of so much growth 
of so much change of the ability to see the humanity in any person in any situation doesn't matter if you're black you're white you're woman you're a man you're you know gay straight whatever your ability to see the humanity of another person is absolutely limitless and if we don't figure this shit out (laughs) yeah it is going to end in a bad place and yeah. that, that's the thing that I think is so hard is if you're not able to hold those two thoughts at the same time as being equally true and equally present, you are in a bad spot. Because if you just hold on to this, this idea that we're going to change, like anyone could do it. We're just, we're right there. Everything's going to be great, blah, blah, blah. There's no sense of urgency. Right. If we just hold on to the what's the point, nothing lasts, you know, every government eventually fails, you know, this government's too big, I don't make a difference, then nobody's going to try. No. And and that, I think, kind of going full circle to where we started with me being a therapist is the crux of the human experience is – I. I think they put it best in the Christian ministry that I was in, in, in college, you pray like it all depends on God and you work like it all depends on you. You have to hope that people will be better, that people will see the humanity of other people, that people will reach down and pick up the person who's fallen and is hurt. If they just knew, and if they just understood you have to hope that any person has the capacity to do that. And you have to always give them the opportunity to. But you never think that the other person's going to do it, and so you don't have to. And I, that's the duality of that is so hard. Like, yeah. You know, you people are comfortable in this black and white world of either this person is bad, this person is good. This, you know, this there's hope or there's not. Yeah. And you have to be able to balance the we are in a dire situation with the we always have the ability to make it better up until the last second, the last pot until we've like put the nail in the coffin. We can as a people change. That has nothing to do with political party. It has nothing to do with socialism versus capitalism or anything. It has everything to do with people being able to stop and recognize the humanity in another person and recognize the humanity within ourselves. That happens on a micro scale in counseling. It happens on a macro scale in government elections. But at the end of the day, what all people are really striving for is that belief that I'm okay. I can protect my own. I can protect my people. And that, that needs to be a more inclusive idea. It's not just me and you as 30 year old ish white males. It's not just the idea of, you know, me as a liberal or you as a Republican or whatever you are. I don't care what you are. Or, you know, it's, it's not me as an American or them as Chinese. It's we are all human beings. We all have mutual wants and needs. And there is a way for us to be able to move forward meeting the needs and wants, more importantly, the needs of all people. Yeah, it's almost like 
things are more complicated than they generally appear. <laughs> I, I would argue yes and no as a therapist, once again, existing yeah. in the gray area. And things are always more complicated than they appear. And there is always a course of action. Sure. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the idea that this uh, this election is either the end or even the beginning of the end um, is fairly naive. I think that, you know, depending on where you where you stand, the appeal is that, you know, if Trump does end up losing, which at this point it, it looks pretty certain. Um, I mean, so many things would have, there are people who, who message me on Twitter and shit, and they're like, well, you know, if, if this and that, and it's like, hmm. So at this point, so many things would have to happen in such a specific order mm-hmm. that it is just, from a statistical standpoint, unlikely. Very unlikely. He would have to not only show so significant a level of voter fraud in a number of states, because he lost almost yep. all of them. It's like, even if he got Georgia. Right. He also <laughs> has to get Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada. <laughs> it's like, you see where this is going. Like, mm-hmm. And that all has to happen, or none of it matters, in terms of him winning the election. And, it, and honestly, if that level of voter fraud is happening... We're done anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, America, well, America already right. lost. <laughs> he may as well just declare himself emperor and see where the fucking dice fall, <laughs> and then just we'll just get it on. <laughs> But um, no, but I also, you know, I also don't think that there are my, my liberal friends that are like, well, you know, Trump's going to, he's going to, he's going to refuse to leave. He's not going to, what do you think he's going to fucking like box himself in the Oval Office, like fucking Scarface. <laughs> and they're going to like kick down the doors and like, he's going to be snorting Coke off the Oval Office desk. Like, no. He will. It's like, no, see, he's going to fucking leave. And that's because this system doesn't allow for another option. Mm-hmm. It's like for better or worse, you know, regardless of who voted for the person, it's like, no, nah, dude, if you lost, you're gone. Thanks for playing. Like your presidency ends on mm-hmm. January 20th and you will get in the little helicopter and we will take you away to wherever it is you want to go. But it's like there is no option C. Mm-hmm. Like you either won and you remain the president or you lost and you will leave when the mm-hmm. next president comes. Um, you know, and that's. I don't know, man. People are fucking nuts. Yeah. It, it, this kind of goes back to the point I made earlier. Our democracy doesn't die on this election. No. Does it become injured? Yes. <laughs> yeah. But like Trump loses. Our, we as a functional government will not allow for that hit the, the time for the exchange to happen for you know Trump to leave and for Biden to enter. <laughs> Our government won't allow for that to not happen on the set date that it needs to happen. Right. Now, is Trump doing a large amount of harm by not providing, you know, security briefings and things like that to Biden? Yes, 100%. Is it providing a significant amount of harm that he is calling into question every facet of our, you know, process in the security of being able to vote either by mail or in person or whatever? Yes. Is is it doing active harm 100%? But our system has not been degraded over the course of this one election to the point to where that is going to result in Trump remaining in the White House. Now, if that happens in 2024, 
and in 2028, right. and in 2032. Yeah. Yes, we're looking at a system where if enough time confidence has been eroded on both sides if you know if eventually the biden slash potentially harris presidency ends up in a position of oh we're going to claim voter fraud when we didn't win next mm-hmm. time around we 100 percent are looking at a both sides of the aisle have committed themselves to burning the system down so we can stay in charge for four more years Right, and that's and that's the thing is it only takes one to initiate that process. You know, one person to be like, "No, I'm not leaving. Fucking come get me." Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there are enough crazy people on either side um, that will do things like show up in Washington. <laughs> and that and that's the thing that's so sad about it is like I don't put. The right is more like I could see just as quickly that oh, the like right a is, fanatic left person yeah. coming up and being like, "I'm not leaving." I, you know, it was a throw of the dice, honestly, sure. when we're looking at the partisanship that we're seeing. Yeah, but the the scary thing is that a platform of the right is don't tread on me. <laughs> well, and the platform <laughs> and so, of, of the far right is authoritarianism. The, exactly. So the far right is authoritarianism and the platform of platform of the far right is if you question this, I have the re- the right to defend myself with force. Sure. And so what you end up with is something that I think is a reasonably scary thing of if a man is in office or a woman who is stoking the far right platform of my my authority is unquestionable and we have the right to defend ourselves with force mm-hmm. then you immediately end up in a situation that is a powder keg sure now does that make the left or the right the majority of those people or like the you know the not the fringe pieces but those other middle pieces does that make them wrong no no but you immediately, because of the way our system is dictated to be, you immediately end up with like 48% mm-hmm. of the population, 49% going, well, okay, defend yourself with force, even though maybe 5% is willing to do it. Right. That sucks. And that ultimately ends up, that puts us in a really dangerous place. Well, and again, it, it drags the Overton window. Yep the window of what is viewed as rational yeah you know when you start talking about create like i talk to people on the right and they're like well i don't see a way out of this without civil war and you're like really it's like not one like you don't, <laughs> you don't see a single avenue that doesn't involve civil war like yeah really yeah I, it's like that's fucking nuts i caught flack on facebook for saying that yeah and th- I, I posted word for word. I said, all joking and bullshit aside, anybody who genuinely wishes for a civil war in this country is out of their goddamn mind. I remember seeing that post. Um, Might have liked it. And I had people who were fucking messaging me and calling me fucking communist and saying that I was like a liberal and that I was... Selling out the country. Right. And I was like, are you fucking serious? Mm-hmm. Like, this is... You can't stand back and realize that this is deranged. <laughs> It's, yep. like, it's like, dude, you've been staring into the abyss for too long, man. You're not even supposed to look, let alone stare. <laughs> like, it's... I... 
Yes. It's like you stuck your fucking head in the abyss. I actually, one of my favorite things to argue about, and I'm not like a, I don't like look out for confrontation. It's not like, oh, I'm ready to fight somebody at any moment. I've seen you on Facebook though, man. You're, you're doing the Lord's work. I don't know (laughs) why you feel the need to engage people. I, uh, I will do it. I will from time to time. Cause I, the thing is, I, you know, what's funny though, just, I'm going to let you finish your Mm -hmm. thought. I'm going to let you finish, but (laughs) (laughs) nobody who does shit like that on Facebook will ever sit down and do a podcast with me. Mm-hmm. I've invited every single one of them. I like, that's a really interesting point of view. You should come on the podcast and talk to me about it. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. It's like interesting, fascinating. <laughs> I. <laughs> the thing is that I um I have I frequently end up arguing with family on Facebook. Occasionally, not family, but that's fine. I um I I, I do it. Because I feel like if I have that conversation with one person and they're like, oh, someone from the other side didn't attack me. Mm-hmm. They they may not agree with me, but they didn't attack me. Maybe I should listen once. Sure. Then that feels like, like I was saying earlier with, the, w- with counseling, I, I'm not for big gains. I'm for we're at a 9.5. If we're at a 9.4 tomorrow, fan freaking tactic that's how i feel about any person if if i can have a conversation with you about defunding the police and move you from oh any person who thinks that reallocating local state and federal finances towards prevention care versus you know arresting and incarcerating people at frankly a disproportionate rate depending on your race and gender Yes, that's time well spent for me. I I 100% that believe that if you were like that person who had a different point of view than me is not a mean, irrational person, that moves the needle and that's worth this time well spent. Well, it's difficult because you, and that's one of the things I like to do here with the podcast. And I tell people when they come on, I'm like, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Like, if there's stuff you don't feel comfortable discussing, we don't have to. Mm-hmm. And I never tell them this, but you know, the reason I say that is not because. I'm afraid to get into it. Mm-hmm. I will talk about anything you want to talk about, uh, including lizard people and pedophile island and, you know, whatever else. But mm-hmm. I realize that other people, when put to task over what their beliefs are, uh, it doesn't stand up. Mm-hmm. And they'll end up looking foolish. Mm-hmm. And I don't want... That's never the goal of bringing somebody on, mm-hmm. is to make them look like an idiot. But... I want to tell them. Like, Some people will do that on their own. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that, you know, like my goal is not to make you look bad, you know, and if you cannot articulate the things you supposedly believe, like maybe you shouldn't believe them or maybe you should do some research, you know, and when people tell me, well, you know, I want to come on and talk about healthcare. And it's like, awesome. You know, I think you should know it's something I do a lot of research on and I've come to know a lot about. Mm-hmm. It's like, and I don't want you to feel like you're getting set up because that's not the idea. I was like, but I am going to question you on things you you bring up. Mm -hmm. But no, I think having the conversation is important and having it in a non-threatening way. And then it takes it, it puts people in an uncomfortable position because it takes it out of the realm of conceptual and puts it into reality. Mm -hmm. It takes it from being, oh, the liberals believe this to 
my brother thinks this. Mm-hmm. My dad thinks somebody I respect thinks this. You saying that is actually a hundred percent the reason I do that. I, one of the conversations that I have with someone on Facebook that I think of often, um, it was my wife's aunt in law. I don't know. Ex aunt in law. I don't what even the know. hell is an aunt in law. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're married to your blood uncle, but they're not anymore. Whatever. I don't call it whatever you want to call it. I was having a conversation with her and I'm sure it has, I, I became more vocal on Facebook after all the George Floyd things. And I, I became, I've always been passionate about this, but it's something that I realized I couldn't sit idly by and not communicate on. There are good police officers. Sure. There are people in the same way that there are great counselors out there who go out there. There are some really shitty ones too. Exactly. They go out there, they do their job and it's great. But the thing is when they're shitty counselors, you go find one person. Well, no one person goes to the board of counseling and says, this person's full of shit. Yeah. They're terrible. They told me that I should do X, Y, Z. They put me in physical harm. They did this. They lose their license. Right. They, they're $200,000 plus in the hole from mm-hmm. their education. Sure. They are licenseless and they earned it because they got into a field and they did harm to another human being. Mm-hmm. They earned that. They're sleeping in the bed they made. You have police officers who once again, doing the Lord's work. I, I very strongly am pro good police my, they, my view on the, policing has changed over the years. Yeah. I, the the bar for becoming a police officer is significantly lower. So it depends. In a lot, it depends. It depends but, on where you are. So like in, in some areas, um, there are positions like in our area, for instance, Albemarle County is the desirable department to work for. Mm-hmm. And the reason is largely benefits, pay, mm-hmm. um, the amount of people and resources they have is considerably higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You get things like your own car. You don't have to share pool vehicles. You know, mm-hmm. you have access to trainings and additional, you know, resources and continuing education units, things like that. Um, it's a much better place to make a career yeah. of policing. But what do you do when you have a place that's good with, like, has a beneficial path for having a career? You get competition. When you sure. get competition, you pick the best people. Yeah. And, and when they wash out, up- they go to Charlottesville. They go to Charlottesville, they go to Richmond, or Waynesboro. They go to Virginia Beach, they go to Waynesboro, right. they go to Northern, you know, they go to places that have high need. Right. And so, and this is ultimately what I'm saying. And in those places, the barrier of entry is fairly low. Yeah, exactly. And so, what I'm saying here is not that all, once mm-hmm. it, this is a huge tenant in counseling, black and white thinking is bullcrap. I'm not saying all police are bad. I would never in a million years say that. I'm not saying that all police are good because. The flip side of that white position of, hey, all police are, you know, bad, is the black position of, you know, all police are good. And and I'm not saying that by skin color. I'm saying that by yeah, I was gonna dichotomous say thinking. I intentionally stri- flipped them. <laughs> strictly a figure of speech. <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought about it before I did that so that I could make that disclaimer and be like, oh, that's not an intentional thing. And that's a product of being a counselor is I think about my words before I say them. It is not black and white. No. It is, or red and orange or whatever you want to call it when we're talking about just the op- – it's not apples and oranges. It's – you have 
a system that in the United States, there is a low amount of accountability in a lot of senses for police officers when it comes to their ability to be prosecuted for crime and the accountability that they're held within certain districts. Now, that does not mean that every district is wrought with corruption. Mm -hmm. It does not mean that all police officers are bad. And it does not mean that we need to throw the whole system out. I am not like an extremist in any Mm -hmm. way, shape, or form. But I am very strongly in favor of the fact that there needs to be some freaking accountability and some consistency in positions that we hold. Albemarle should have the same standard as Richmond, as Northern Virginia, as, you know, Norfolk, Virginia Beach area, as California, as Florida, as whatever. It's strange to me that we are so slow to recognize that there are just certain standards that need to be put in place when it comes to certain things like use of force and who we're using our force against. Now, do I recognize that there is a disproportionate amount of violent crime in certain communities? I do. Does that go along racial lines sometimes? Yes, it does. Does that also go along lines of socioeconomic status? 100%. Does that go along the lines of education level? 100%. So when we sit here and have these conversations of oh, this is a black or a white issue, and that time I do mean it by race, or this is a Republican liberal issue, that's bullshit. Sure. What we're really talking about here is standard of living. We're talking about opportunity, and we're talking about holding those accountable or holding those who are in positions of power over certain populations accountable for their actions. Part of the reason that Albemarle County's police force is of a higher quality. It's because they're rich. (laughs) It's because they, Albemarle County (laughs) in the grand scheme of things is a very wealthy county. Yeah. Yeah. Proportionally. Loudoun County in Northern Virginia. Yeah. I bet you do not hear a freaking peep from them as far as the quality of the police department because they have enough money to fund the police department adequately. Right. And they also have some money to put towards some other things. Sure. And the other piece is that Loudoun County is so freaking expensive to live in. Albemarle County is so freaking expensive to live in. Right. That it becomes cost prohibitive for people of lower SES to get there. Right. So you don't end up with situations where police have to have a split second decision about the use of force nearly as often. Right. As you have people in Richmond or in D.C., or in Virginia Beach. It, yeah, but that's just, like, really complicated, though. It is really complicated. Fucking cops are bad, and we need to take their money. <laughs> exactly. So, But the thing is, like, I, I had a really long discussion with somebody about it with Fluvanna. I can't believe you type all that out, man. You're, like I said, you're doing the Lord's work, but Jesus. Like. But Because here's the thing. I, um, my, my friend Jordan, he has a family member that I frequently get in, I think, really good political discussions with i had made a comment about the allocation of resources and how i don't think that it's fair or equitable based on race ses and things of that nature he was like okay well explain to me how albemarle doesn't do that appropriately and i'm like hey you live in albemarle that's really great albemarle actually does a better job of it than some places sure because they have more resources but let's talk about fluvanna county 
Fluvanna County. You know how many Fluvanna deputies are on the road right now? I don't know. Just guess. I would guess two, <laughs> if that. <laughs> two and one state trooper is typical mm-hmm. who's on call. State trooper's not on the road. He's probably at home. So, and that that's the thing. So, when we're talking two. about counties and their allocation of resources, when we're talking about law enforcement and incarceration in Fluvanna County, we're nearly approaching 50% of the county's total financial resources are allocated to that. Sure. Now, what does that leave? We have education, which luckily is subsidized every by the federal other government. thing that a county needs to tend to. Exactly. <laughs> so we, we have education that everybody's like, well, yeah, we need to educate our kids. Luckily, that's subsidized by the federal government in a large way, but still takes up a large portion sure. of Fluvanna County's resources. You are then left with social services and, you know, road, you know, infrastructure development and financial development and paying county, you know, employees that do like pensions, action, you know, all of it. Yeah. So you're looking at this huge pot. I mean, not huge pot, Fluvanna is small, but huge proportionally pot of resources. And kind of going back to what we talked to before about this idea of diminishing returns, you come to a point where there's only so much money you're going to put into the police force or into the school system before you start losing the benefit of those dollars. Right, or your gains are so small and incremental proportional to the amount of money that's being dropped in that it is no longer worthwhile. Exactly. So what you're looking at in places like Fluvanna County or Goochland County or all these other rural areas is that... You, you put this money into the police department for incarceration and for law enforcement. It is important. It needs to happen. But then when you look at how much money is left for DSS, how much money is left for the people who did the job that you do, or it's finding right. jobs for people who come out of jail. Or federal grants. Exactly. So federal grant, but that's the thing. Federal grants Which is great come from out. educated people who are able to navigate the system to find a federal grant. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Albemarle County is exceedingly good at finding federal grants. Sure. Because they have a pipeline well, of grant. UVA feeding Albemarle County positions or well, people moving right, because grant they, writers. Yeah, they have grant writers. They right. they have enough money to pay someone a livable above livable wage to figure out how to get those grants. Yeah. How many grant writers do we think Fluvanna County has? Well, Grant was a Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> that, but that's exactly what we're talking about right so you you're talking about places like fluvanna county where god bless them you've got like a handful of people on the county board they don't have a staff right. they don't have grant writers they don't have people figuring out how to get that federal money right they get fluvanna county's property tax they get the taxes from you know whatever else you have going on my honda civic or you know crv or whatever else and then fluvanna county prides itself on low taxes which you know i benefit from so yay but at the which same is great time you're poor yeah as a county but at the end of the day we have low taxes well that means we have less money for people like grant writers or right. other people like that so we end up in this cycle of fluvanna county just has no money right we allocate what we need to allocate towards law enforcement we have what we need to allocate towards education well okay we'll f social services then like we just right there's not enough money what do you want us to do so we have like three social workers working out of fluvanna county i don't know the exact numbers but 
from the ones that I run into, there's very few considering the frequency which I see the handful that I do. Yeah. You have a handful of workers working a disproportionate amount of people due to the low SES education level and disparities in that way in the county. Which increases burnout, decreases the service life of a social worker, and it just so on and so forth. Exactly. Which, when there's less social workers to provide prevention services, increases the need for law enforcement and incarceration, and then you end up in this perpetual cycle. Sure. I think think the answer is... It's more complicated, like most things are. Yeah. Uh, and when people ask me about it, which they rarely do, um, I get asked a lot how to get out of speeding tickets, but not often about defunding police. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think the answer is it's actually going to upset people because I think the answer is more funding, particularly for training. Mm-hmm. Training is, as a general rule, and it's very similar to the military in this way, it is the last line item in a police department's budget. Mm-hmm. It is like I mean it's the same in any <clears throat> institution. I worked at Elk Hill for years. They're a great organization. I never, other than like my supervisor providing formal training through right. her experience, I was never sent to a conference. I was never sent to an expert in their field. Right. I received the training from a person who received the training from their own dime because they were just paid higher than me and could afford the training. Sure. To receive their like secondhand trainings yeah there's value in that i i in no way want to be like oh elk hill you did it wrong right they did what they could based on the finances they had i think elk hill as an organization did a great job in managing their stream of both like grant funding you know personal donors and all that stuff and i i don't want to like throw them under a bus but that's what like what you were saying it's the right. last item in that thing is training organizations do what they can Nobody, no department wants to be staffed by incompetent cops. That's Mm -hmm. nobody's desire. Mm -hmm. Um, But you do see that particular departments, um, and again, I won't necessarily name any names, but um, some departments and some, you can argue all day long about how this issue begins and where it ends and um, whether it's leadership or whether it's, you know, a particular allocation of funds or whatever, but training ends up being the last line item. Things like defensive tactics, things like, uh, firearms use, things like, you know, Recognizing force on force issues. scenarios, things <laughs> like CIT training, things like, you know, things that directly proportionally affect an officer's ability to perform in the field um, are the last thing we invest in. Yeah. And it sucks. And, and that's the thing that when I have those arguments with people on Facebook, it quickly becomes an issue of, oh, you hate the police. And I don't. I think we treat them like crap. I think that we, we undertrain them. And we expect them to deal with issues that they're not trained to do. Well, or that, you know, that they don't really have the resources to deal with. Well, so if, yeah. you, if you send, say that you have a child who's experiencing a mental health problem, you know, they're, they're having an episode of some kind, they're belligerent or combative or whatever, and you call the police. And the police come to your house for that call, which will probably come in as some sort of a domestic. Um that officer has very, very few avenues with which to process that problem. We can TDO them, but that's going to take a minute. Um, and I say a minute. <laughs> it takes a long time. Right? <laughs> Especially in places um, like Fluvanna County where you right. have like one magistrate who's on call for 24 hours and like, right, maybe we'll get them, maybe we won't. <laughs> so you can TDO them. Uh, we can arrest them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can physically 
you know, fight them and arrest them and take them away uh, and charge them with a crime, which will obviously improve their situation. Oh, of course. Um, or Jail we, time's the best. Right. Or we can leave. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's really not... The, the scope of law enforcement never was meant to involve these other things. Yeah. They are agents of the state that are tasked with enforcing the laws of the state. Yeah. That's their job. Yeah. That's what police do. And we and we ask them to do too much. Like, well, at the end of the day, that's what I tell people. The police are asked to respond to domestic violence. They're asked to respond to suicidal people. They're asked to respond to cats stuck in trees. They're asked to respond to people speeding. And right. Can all I TDO this, arrest things. this, shoot it, or write it a ticket? Yeah. <laughs> Which of those things can I do Exactly. Here? And, and that's <laughs> the thing is... It's not wrong for that to be their perspective. Mm -hmm. It's not wrong for that to be what they're trained in doing. Mm -hmm. What's wrong is that as a society, we ask them to apply that level of training to more, as you like to put, complicated situations. Sure. Domestic violence, perfect example. And then we're surprised when it goes poorly. Yeah. Domestic violence is a perfect example. It's crappy. It shouldn't happen. Sure. People who engage in domestic violence should be prosecuted. Yes. People who engage in domestic violence typically have trauma histories. Sure. They frequently engage in substance abuse. They frequently have less opportunity. They frequently have lower incomes. They There's so many factors involved. And when you have someone who show up, shows up to a house with a gun, as I'm not saying the police should not have guns, but I'm saying when someone enters a situation that is very complicated. And volatile. And volatile. By definition. And they're armed. Right. That immediately changes the tone of the situation well, incidentally, or escalates um, the tone of the situation. Incidentally, in, in use of force, because you had brought that up earlier, uh, the very first level of force, legally speaking, is called officer presence. Mm-hmm. Because you showing up somewhere as an agent of the state is in of itself a level of force. Yep. It's like, okay, now the fucking state of Virginia is at your door. Yeah. Some shit's just escalated. <laughs> yeah. And so, and that's the thing. So, like, it's the difference between the sheriff or the state trooper mm-hmm. and a licensed mental health professional coming to your door unarmed and being like, hey, man, I, I understand there's some things going on. Let's figure it out. Now, yes, I this is one of my favorite things that I talk to someone about. I, I was talking about that, and they were like, oh, well, you know, that just means that you guys will be in more danger. Yeah. We're trained to do that. Yeah. I have I, my program. I, William and Mary has a phenomenal program. They immediately were like, Hey, someone might pull a gun on you. Yeah. Like you, you, you are putting your life in danger by working with certain populations. Sure. Now that doesn't mean that you like, it, it's just a realistic issue that comes up when you are working with people who have severe mental health issues with people who have severe stressors is that they do not have the coping strategies in place and that they are more likely to engage in violence that is just a realistic part of it now being like oh well you you have your master's degree you weren't expecting this you don't want violent like mm-hmm. you wouldn't know what to do we're trained in de-escalation we, we we understand that risk. Yeah, I think the I think where people get at with that is that there is a difference between 
your role in the sense that I don't think it's an issue of you being comfortable or you having the tools to de-escalate a situation. I think the the conflict is going to be, particularly with a domestic, if you arrive at a domestic and you're a, a licensed mental health professional, mm-hmm. you have certain roles and obligations in that scenario. You're going to mm-hmm. be acting as a de-escalator. You're asking as, you know, acting with people who are in crisis from a patient-client perspective. As a police officer, you are an agent of the state tasked yeah. with enforcing the laws of the state. And yeah. if you show up to a domestic and you can ascertain that an assault or a crime has occurred, you actually have a legal obligation mm-hmm. to take the aggressor into custody. Yeah. By definition, against their will. And and that's the thing, though. So it is, is a different role. It is. But at the same time, you can enforce the law without force. A lot Sometimes. Of the time. Sometimes. Not always. <laughs> and I, that's what I'm saying. Sometimes the guy looks at you looking, and says, fuck you. Exactly. And that's the thing is, so when you're looking at different areas, different situations, once again, it's complicated, uh-huh. but there are counties that have created partnerships between DSS and their police services, where when they respond to domestic calls, when they respond to those things, there is a police officer and a DSS worker, a licensed social worker present. Sure. Those situations, those departments have higher success rates because they're able to have somebody willingly de-escalate they come outside they they're able to be able to go you know what that didn't go the way i want they engage with the police there's a conversation about that they're able to go through the judicial system and they you know diversion programs and things of that nature where they're able to recognize the issue and then there's the the ever like escapable like the thing that all people want reform where it's the the whole point of the judicial system should be reform. It's sure. the idea that you broke the law, you recognized it, and then you took action steps to avoid it. Police officers play a very important role. They do. I in no way undermine the importance of the police. They enforce the law. It needs to happen. But if you are only using a hammer... All right, everything starts to look situa- like a nail. Exactly. There are domestic violence situations that need a screwdriver. They, there are situations where you can go into a situation, yes, with increased risk of harm, for sure, to the DSS worker or the licensed professional counselor or whatever mental health professional that sends in there for them. There is an increased risk of harm, but they're also, and this is the part that is so often discounted there's an increased chance for actual life change that happens in that moment because when you come in with a police officer and you say okay we're just enforcing the law right now and they're doing what they're trained to do then there's an unnecessary risk of escalation and there's an unnecessary chance that somebody is put in a position where they're just penalized without there being a chance for reform and we can go into, you know, for-profit jails and all that stuff at another time if you ever want me to come back. Yeah, I but think we're, we ultimately, uh, we're at yeah, 519. We're, <laughs> we're we going way get, over. We have to get a smoke in. Um, we do. But uh, the end point is just that we, you edit out anything else that's not important, we as a society have elevated the importance of enforcing the law of punishing individuals 
over the need for reform. And this goes back to the point that we were talking about with the election. You have to believe that there's change. You have to believe that people have the capacity to do better if they had more opportunity. And when we only respond with law enforcement or when we overwhelmingly respond with law enforcement or when we respond with law enforcement, turf them to DSS and DSS is working with 45, 50 clients a month, you're not going to have meaningful reform. Sure. You're going to have people who play the system. You're going to have people who avoid the law. You're going to have people who are disengaged from mental health services and you ultimately end up in a place where people don't make meaningful life change. And I, and then we get into, is that the role of the government to facilitate life change? I believe that the role of the government <laughs> is to ensure that all people have access to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If there are systemic issues in place, be it racial, economic, or any other thing, that puts somebody in a position to where they don't have access to opportunity and therefore don't have access to meaningful life change, then it is the government's responsibility to provide services to give that person an option to pursue that. Do we have the ability to enforce that? Like, do we have the ability to say, hey, you have to choose life change? No. In which case, yes, they they need to be the law needs to be enforced. Yeah. But if we as a society have constructed an environment where people with lower education, where people of different races or different genders or different whatever are being placed at a disadvantage, we have a right, we have a need, we have an obligation to provide the opportunity for life change. Anything short of that, I feel like, is just kind of going back to what you were saying. It's the, well, you should stop being poor. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just shouldn't be poor. Right. Have you tried not being poor? Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, we can say that, but if we're not pairing that with, hey, here's an opportunity for you to get your GED. Sure. Hey, you know what? You were in a domestic violence situation. Here's a situation where you have housing and access to jobs hey you know the government has already ensured a living wage if you were to access one of those jobs if if that's not the role of the government then we shouldn't have a government (laughs) in a lot of senses the role of the government is to protect from foreign invaders and then regulate interstate commerce and that's it everything else fuck off (laughs) if that is the decree of the citizenry (laughs) then that is the role of the government it will be the ones that are left (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so and then that's when you circle back to political issues but i i i am a very staunch supporter of the idea of the consent of the governed yeah and I cannot speak for everyone, and I will not speak for everyone, but I strongly believe that if you were to talk to all people, if you were able to sit down with them, have the kind of conversation we're having, the consensus in a lot of senses would be that people should have equal opportunity 
to success? Is there variance in their ability to take up that opportunity? 100% yes. But should all people have equal access? Yes. And that's when you kind of get into this argument of equality versus equity, blah, 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 blah. Socialism is that all people should, like textbook socialism, the most refined quality of outcome. Exactly. It's everybody should have the same thing. Right. And if not, they'll be made to. Exactly. I, I very strongly believe that most people would feel that the role of the government is that everyone has a fair shake. Sure. That if they were to put in the same amount of effort, the same amount of time, have the same amount of opportunity that they could be Jeff Bezos. So I think that, I think the reality of it for me at least is when you when talk about equality versus equity and there's all these cute little memes that go on Facebook about it. Um, <laughs> to me, equity takes on a different meaning. You know, it's when you have equity in something, you know, I think of like a business or, mm-hmm. um, you know, a project or something like that. When you feel like you have a place and you feel like you have some ownership of the outcome of that situation or that project or the success of that business and you share in some of that success, um, you're far more motivated to participate and to do so at a level that's, that's meaningful. Yeah. When you feel thoroughly disenfranchised, particularly from government, um, and you feel like the government's not accountable to you or your representatives are not accountable to you or the representatives just don't give a shit about you because their team won. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really dangerous place to put people um, because mm-hmm. there's only but so many outcomes to that. Yep. You know, there's only so many branches to that tree. When you disenfranchise half the country, and the Republicans did it. They don't want to think they did, but that's what they've been doing for the last four years. Yep. The attitude was, fuck you, libs. We won, and now we will impose our will upon you because we can. Yep. And I'm seeing the same attitude in reverse now. Where the argument is, again, fuck the Republicans, we won, we're in charge now, and we will now impose our will upon you for the next four years. And that level of disenfranchisement, um, it builds animosity, it builds resentment, um, it reinforces held stereotypes and beliefs. (laughs) And um, it's a really dangerous road to go down. And it doesn't benefit anyone. Again, I think the the biggest thing is to giving people equity in something. I don't understand how that's a bad thing unless you intentionally convolute it in such a way that you twist the meaning. It's not saying you give everybody everything or you give everybody somebody else's stuff. I don't think that's it at all. It's giving people a role to play and some ownership of the outcome. That's it. Giving yeah. people a seat at the table. Yeah. And and that's the thing that, like, me and my wife talk about this all the time. We were conservatives. Like, hardcore, like, you know, fiscally conservative people. Mm-hmm. In a lot of senses, socially conservative people. Up until the last, like, four to six years. Yeah. When... and you know, call this our liberal education. We became increasingly aware of systemic forces, often not intentional, but ever present 
forces that make it to where everyone, like you said, does not have a seat at the table. Right. Those are not things that are fixed over the course of four years. Well, and the beauty of it, too, is that it's not always something you yourself did. Yeah. The idea that you somehow bear responsibility for it just from existing is nonsense. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a fallacy that's, I, that's played on by both sides. They're yeah. like, oh, well, you're telling me because I'm white and male that I'm responsible for slavery. It's like, it's like well, did you ever own slaves? And they're like, no. I was like, then you were not responsible for slavery. Yeah. However, <laughs> you you are not personally responsible for slavery, right. but you are personally responsible for the existing legacy right. of or the, slavery. Or the, the, the inaction. Exactly. So what you end up with is, I am not responsible for slavery. I did not institute Jim Crow laws. Sure. I was not opposed to racial integration in the 60s. I did not participate in redlining right. in the 80s, 90s, and sometimes still present today. I do not do those things. I have never, I don't want to say never, I have never, as far as I'm aware, willingly engaged in being racist towards another person. I recognize that I have implicit bias. Sure. That there are things that have been ed- that I have been taught through both social norms, through family interactions, through whatever, that have shaped my view of what it means to be equal as both white, black, male, woman, Christian, non-Christian, whatever. Those are all things that have been taught to me through lived experience and through like social norm. I at this moment have a responsibility for making sure that a man, woman, black, white, you know, Christian, non-Christian, whatever walk of life, race, creed, whatever, has a seat at the table. Sure. That concept is not intrinsically anti-Christian. It is not hating myself as a white person. It is not you know, feeling guilt for myself as an American or any a male or anything. It's just I, at this current moment, have a responsibility to make sure that I can be as inclusive as possible to any person who's not included. I don't, I feel no guilt for being white. I feel no guilt for being a man. I feel no guilt for being a Christian. Right. I, <laughs> I feel responsibility <laughs> I feel that I have a moral obligation to close the gap. Yeah, I think that you I don't think you're going to get everybody there. I don't think so. But I do think that we can strive. Oh yeah. You know, if you can get people to just have a baseline awareness. Be like, you know, I think you know when you said I don't feel guilty about being white, I think that's a good point because that's one I, I bring up to people a lot, you know, when they talk about like white guilt and I read Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility and it was I wasn't a huge fan. I think it was an oversimplification of a very complicated issue uh, because mm-hmm. I don't think that any one person or entity or group bears 100% of responsibility for any of it. Mm-hmm. But I will say that when I talk to people about it and I say you know, they're like, why shouldn't I have to feel guilty because I'm white? I was like, I agree, 100%. I was mm-hmm. like, I think that's an, that's an absurd notion. I was like, but I think you can also, if you're being honest with yourself, even if you just want to do it alone in your bathroom looking in the mirror, you don't have to tell anybody. <laughs> if, you, if you want to acknowledge just for a second that maybe your life has been easier in certain ways mm-hmm. because you're white. And they're like, well, I don't know about that. I was like, I do. I can give you an example. I was like, so the other day my wife and I were looking in 
fuck, where was it? We were at some place and we wandered off the beaten path. It was like some event or something. I was like, oh, this looks cool. We should go check this out. And we were in a place we were obviously not supposed to be. And <laughs> she was like, we're not supposed to be here. I was like, what is the worst thing that's going to happen if some fucking security guard wanders across us? I'm going to be like, oh, I'm sorry. I got lost. I didn't know I was supposed to be here. And he's going to be like, oh, we'll head back down the hall to the left and that'll take you back where you're going. And that would yep. be the end of the situation. That is the epitome of what is considered to be white privilege mm-hmm. is that I can take a specific set of circumstances and I will decidedly have a single outcome that is different than other outcomes mm-hmm. with that being the only tangible X value is that I can do more or less what I want to do with impunity as long as I am not committing a major crime of some kind. Um, and nothing tangible will happen for it. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that's going to happen is I'm like, oh, sorry, I was lost. It's like Dave Chappelle did a bit a long time ago where he was riding around with his white friend. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the guy gets stopped yeah. in the office. He goes, I know what you're talking about. Officer, I didn't know I couldn't do that. And the guy's like, well, you know, try to drive safe or something. <laughs> it's like, but it's my brother's and I joke about that all the time. I'm like, oh, I yeah. didn't know I couldn't do that. <laughs> and then the cop leaves and he looks at him, he's like, Dave, Dave, I did know. <laughs> it's like, but it's just like, you know, and it's it's a comical way to look at it. It's like, but it's okay. You know, it's like you ever seen the movie My Cousin Vinny? I haven't. I need oh to. So there's <laughs> so there's a great bit in that where he asks a guy a question under oath and the guy like looks at everything. It's okay, you can say it, they know. <laughs> it's like that's it's like, but that's the answer, you know? It's yeah. like everybody fucking knows that exists. Like yeah. that's not a that's not a new phenomenon. We gave it a new name, but it's not like a new thought process. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are black in America at any given time in the United States history, your life will be different and in some ways worse than somebody who was born white under the same circumstances. For sure. And there's no way to get around that. Yep. I'm not saying there's no way to change it, but that is a truth. Yeah. It is not debatable. And there are examples and outliers that will say, oh, well, this person, you know, came from poverty and did this. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France like 14 times. Nobody fucking does that. He was missing a ball. Right. It's like, but that's not like nobody uses Lance Armstrong as an anecdotal piece of evidence. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. It's just accepted that he is the exception. Um, And he was juicing, but there's, you know, besides that. But, you know. No, it's like, you know, you can accept and understand those things as being true without letting it threaten Mm -hmm. your very concept of existence. One of the things that I have a conversation with people about all the time is recognizing white privilege in no way detracts from your effort as a person. Oh, but that's, you know, that's the other thing, man. That's the, that's the, it's like the, um, it's one of those twists that people use, like, uh, to make it look bad, like universal mm-hmm. healthcare. You know, they're like, oh, well, you know, they're trying to take away your sense of achievement because they're saying you only did this because you're white. So mm-hmm. that's not true. Yeah. And, and so I've railed on Jeff Bezos a couple of times. Jeff Bezos was an entrepreneur. Was he worked. Genius. Yeah. He, he created an a, empire. He created an empire out of a system that allowed it. Right. Props. He played like the Jeff same, Bezos. Jeff Bezos the same is a game. smart man. He right. played the yeah exactly. He said he played the same game as many 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 people did. Yeah, and he won. Right, and so that in my saying, whatever I say about Jeff Bezos, in no way detracts from the effort that he put in playing the game. Right, my comments on Jeff Bezos are a result of the game is rigged. 
Sure. The game benefits certain people over others. I, I, I will even, I, I claim this. I came from a comfortably middle-class white family. As did I. Uh, yeah. I am a white male. I also had the privilege of traveling to a lot of very unprivileged countries. And I got to see firsthand what life in America is actually like versus yep. the rest of the world. So, And that's the thing. So we, we are so ready to admit American privilege over Venezuelan privilege. Oh, sure. We were born here. It's been easier for us. Yeah. Everything about being an American, if you were an American in the 21st century, you are at a place in which you are the 1% of people who have ever lived in the history of humanity. Oh, yeah, ever. for sure. And we're so ready to admit that. Right. And then as soon as someone's like, oh, but certain Americans have it worse than other Americans, we're like, oh, bullshit. Right. <laughs> and that, that have you tried not crazy. being poor? Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's this idea that once you're American, you made it. Right. Everyone's willing to admit that. They're like, well, at least I'm not Indian. At least I'm sure. not Chinese. You know, we're, we sit here and do that all day. At least we're not in Ghana. Sure. But then as soon as we're like, oh, well, there's certain Americans that don't have the same opportunity as other Americans. We're like, well, that's not possible. Yeah. That can't, that uh, could not be the case. They're not working hard enough. Exactly. Have they looked for their own bootstraps recently? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> if you found your bootstraps, you pull yourself up. Right. But as this person, you probably haven't even looked because you're not as smart or you don't care as much. Right. And the thing is, I, I, I get so upset about it. But like I, I have benefited from privilege. Sure. And it's it, and it's not even just like by stuff I, you know, there's stuff that I've chosen, and there's stuff that I am I I choose to benefit from that privilege. I've been in interviews, as a twenty something year old man, that they've been like, honestly, we've had six women apply for this position. You're the only man. We have six women on staff and one man. We need a guy. We need you. Yeah. And and in therapy, I, I will say that there are certain jobs where it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, like you you do the job the same way. I get that in counseling, there are men who want to speak to men. There are women who want to speak to women. There are people who fall in between who want to speak to someone who falls in between. I get that. There, there's this idea yeah. of representation within fields. There's this idea of I, I feel more comfortable. And that's really what we're talking about in therapy right. is this idea of I, I feel safe here. I get that I need to be represented within my field. I don't yeah. feel guilty for being represented well, shouldn't, within because, my field. Because, you know, the assumption is that – the assumption, I should say, is that that was not the sole point of having picked you. It wasn't. I was good at what I did, and right. I was a man. But the thing is, when we're looking at based strictly on effort, sure, there are women who were just as qualified as I was. Sure. But at the end of the day, they needed a man because there are elementary school aged seven, eight year old men. Right, and half women, of them are men. Exactly. Right. Who need someone that they can talk to. Who is also who, a man. Exactly. Based on their developmental level, their ability to process what's going on, based on their just socioeconomic whatever norms, they need to be able to talk to a man. There are there are children, there are adults, there are whatever age you are, who never have been able to open up to a man, and it means something to speak to a man in that sure. way. It is a therapeutic benefit that I am a man. There's also a lot of benefit, you know, and and 
there's something to that in the probation side of things too. When I worked a domestic violence case, so we had one female officer and one male officer, very yep. specifically for that reason. Um, there were male clients who were, you know, there because they were a domestic abuser, um, and putting them with an authoritarian female was a really bad idea mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. <laughs> it takes everything yep. they that triggers them and then puts it in a package with a badge sitting across the desk from them yeah. and controlling their fate. Basically, it's a really bad combination. Similarly, there were females who almost exclusively, if they are involved in a domestic violence situation, they have been, if they're an abuser, they have also been a victim. That's, you can just go ahead and, and write that off from the beginning. You know, it's like if you, as a female or a domestic abuser, you at some point in your life were abused as well. That's a, it's a, I have a really high level of confidence to learn behavior. Yeah. Um, but they often didn't do well with males. Yeah. With a male officer, they were either sexually inappropriate with a male officer um, or they, which was a really interesting situation. Um, I, I have had, I quick aside, I, the most flattered I've ever been, because not many people have hit on me. I know I'm attractive. Not many people have hit on me, but I, I was in a uh, substance abuse group mm-hmm. and like I... It was when I was working at a CSB for my internship and I was being hit on. There was a disproportionate amount of women in that group proportionate to the area. But, you know, grand scheme of things, it wasn't 50 50. Mm-hmm. There was more women in that group than men. I was being hit on frequently. And it was like, this is a weird dynamic. Like right. they, they frequently part of the reason a lot of those women were using substances is because they were hopeless. They were isolated. They were looking for attention. Right. And as a man, I was not best suited to provide treatment. Yeah. And so I, I feel like that's a beneficial thing to recognize. Having in like, jails too, in facilities. Yeah. Male CEOs sure. get themselves caught up in that man. And in yep. jail, it's a slightly different mentality because there's sort of like a pack mentality going on. Um, where they're sort of just bored. And mm-hmm. so they're like, oh, let's see if we can ruin somebody's career. <laughs> yeah. like, let's lure this guy. It's like uh, sirens on the rocks, man. They, um, But it's Go crazy. You know, you, um, yeah, I think, it's, I, I think it's very threatening for people to... It, I think it's a natural human reaction to be like, that's not my fault. Yeah. And to remove yourself from blame. But, you know, if you, if you look at it a little bit deeper... It's not blame. It's just an understanding of a set of circumstances that exists. Yeah. That you didn't necessarily do anything to contribute to. It's the power of the word and. Right. It's not my fault and right. a woman should have been providing services to those women based on their needs. Right. Two versus things. it's not my fault but a woman. That invalidates the first statement of it's not my fault. Right. And that's where people get so caught up. It can be true. It's not my fault. Right. And there's this problem in place. And as a society, we get so fixated on what comes after the butt. Well, two things can be true at once. Exactly. And that's and a really but hard, it's hard thing for people to get. Because we, we exist in a world where black and white feels good. Right. It feels good to say it's not my fault. It's hard. Right. It takes effort to acknowledge the things after the and. Yeah. That someone else should do this. Well, it's like healthcare, you know? Yeah. Single payer healthcare has its downsides and our current system fucking sucks. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is that like 
we can look at all of these things. I, I don't hate America. I love America. I'm so blessed to be here. I thank God every day that me, my wife, and my family exist in a country where we have opportunity, where we have access to education, where we have the right to engage in our Christian beliefs the way that we want. It's beautiful. I love what our country does. And there are not, I mean, I, I'm not going to say America is the best country in the world. I don't believe it. I think we are. I, and I'll that's the it. thing. So other people can. I I don't 100%. <laughs> I don't 100% believe that we've got it. America's watching. Just be careful what you say. <laughs> I don't 100% believe that we are intrinsically better than what the UK has got going on. Or than what, you know, other Germany. There are countries where I'm like, if I was born there, I'd be a happy person. I'd be speaking German, but I'd be a happy person. I should say I don't think that we are the only good country Exactly. And and that's the thing. But that's that's an and statement. Right. We're amazing. And there's other countries that are doing it right differently. Yeah. Germany is run very different than we are in a lot of ways. Yeah. The UK is run very differently than we are in a lot of ways. Sure. And people are happy there. Yeah. Finland, Denmark, all of these countries that have access. It, it doesn't matter if you're capitalist, socialist, whatever. Yeah. Access to education, accountability to government, equal opportunity, access to health care, access to shelter, access to basic human needs. I don't want to say rights because people get really up in arms when you use the word right. The needs of a human being. When you have access to those things, regardless of system of government, people are, are happier. They are more successful. So I think that's that's a correct general statement. I think where most people who are maybe intellectually sound and well-traveled would come at you is that um, there is a, a significant difference in most of the places you listed between them and the United States. A lot of it is mm-hmm. a largely homogenous population that values yep. education and civic participation, which the United States is not um, geographically and politically and ideologically based. We are significantly different in a lot of areas of the country. So I think there are, as a generalized statement, I think it works really well. You know, the yep. idea that if you provide people with the basic security and human needs and decency and you treat people with respect, um, that only good things will come from that. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Um, but I think there is more to just like, for instance, England, there's Mm -hmm. more to it than that. Oh, it is. There is a, a divergence of cultural development that spans several hundred years. Mm -hmm. Um, and particularly in the, in the way of national priorities, like the national health service is a really good example. So people talk about the NHS a lot. Um, and a lot of England has a lot of shit to talk about the NHS, Yep. but, or, and, (laughs) And they also would never want our system instead. Oh, yeah. For sure. That's, you know, they're like, oh, no, no, we, we, we don't come out the NHS. And I've seen it on, like, Twitter. You know, it's like yep. you, they, can, they can talk shit about it, but it's still, they think, the best thing that's going. You know, and it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, dichotomy. But we have to, we have to, <laughs> we have to, we have to stop. <laughs> I, that's the thing. Come bring me back later. I'll bring you back. I'll talk all day long. I I guess the the point that we're going to end on. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the last word. Give me the last like, word. Like Bill O'Reilly. I used love to. it. You better because I'm the guest. <laughs> you respect me. At the end of the day, I love America. I love. I I think that we're doing something really special here. I think that 
it becomes more special. It becomes more inclusive. It becomes better when we're able to recognize that there's gaps in our ability to care and love for other people. I think America is fundamentally rooted in this belief that everyone should have access to certain rights and to certain privileges as an American citizens. We're not doing as good as we should. It does not discount the effort. It does not say that those who spilled blood in World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, any of those places, their lives were lost in vain. And it's something that I hate. I hate when people point to that because any loss of life is tragic. Any situation where somebody has put in a significant amount of effort to include and to bring other people up needs to be recognized. And I, I, I very strongly believe that. That does not mean that we don't have work to do. I, I love that we're having the conversations that we're having. I love that we're having the conversation about the lack of inclusivity in government, the lack of inclusivity and in opportunity economically in how the law is applied. These, these are conversations that need to happen. They do not in any way detract from how far we've come. They do not in any way detract from the amount of effort that we've put in to get where we are. We still have places to go. I believe strongly that capitalism can be a good thing as long as there is accountability in capitalism. I believe that socialism could be a good thing as long as there is accountability. I believe that all people are created equal. All people should have opportunity. But we need to hold people accountable for applying those beliefs if the law doesn't represent, if we are not electing people who represent that, though the majority of the country believes that that should be represented, we need to look at how our government is operated. We need to look at con you know campaign finance reform. We need to look at how the electoral college works. And we didn't hit on that, but whatever. <laughs> we need to look at how our system of government operates, how representation turns into actual law and we need to be able to keep people accountable but at the end of the day if we're sitting here bickering about whether or not we should feel guilty about our whiteness or whether or not making minimum wage at 725 is okay in virginia or whatever if we're sitting here bickering about that kind of stuff we are losing sight of the importance of equality like legitimate equality, the equal access of opportunity, the equal access of being able to be represented in government, to be represented in business, to be represented in our community. I love, I love what America has going on and it can be better. We need to stop, 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 stop that idea that someone who believes different than us is saying that what we believe is also untrue. They can both be true. We can both pursue those things. It may take compromise. It may take a great deal of effort. But I strongly believe that what ties us together as people, our humanity, is a common thing. 
and we need to be able to come together on something because if we keep falling into this idea of tribalism regardless if it's political party belief race gender whatever if we keep buying into the fact that only if we believe what this side or this side believes we're going to end up just like every other system of government has every country every people group who's just bought into that this is the only way it can be we're just going to fall to the wayside and then in 200 years <laughs> there's going to be another greatest country in the world and they're going to be having the same discussion so all in all just feel like people need to love each other better see where we are and commit to the idea of everyone needs to have the same opportunity that I do. Even if that means that I have less opportunity than I did before. Peace. Yeah, I, uh, I think we got it. <laughs> Let's go smoke.